0: This picture doesn't make you scream and squirm. you'd better see a psychiatrist quick Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. I'm Nathan Bartlebaugh from Baltimore, Maryland, one of your hosts for tonight's episode. This is episode 222, Underrated and Offbeat Slashers. We have a really cool show for you this evening. We'll soon be joined by both Trey Whetstone and Victor Rodriguez as we discuss a couple of our choices for offbeat or underrated slasher films, and we'll talk about three specific ones. Each of us picked a title, and we'll also throw some titles out there that, from our perspective, are either overlooked or a little offbeat, meaning that they uh, meet the criteria of a slasher, but they may not be the first film that comes to mind when you think of the term. Slasher. And HMP did do in the past, I'll have the links in the show notes, a really extensive look at slashers, an entire series on slashers from the 80s alone that ran several episodes that also featured Greg Morgan from Land of the Creeps. So the links for those will be in the show notes. That's a pretty exhaustive list, and so we didn't feel we wanted to jump right back into the general slashers. We thought we would try to look around the edges and pick some that don't get talked about a lot. Additionally, tonight, we do have a segment coming up where Matt Rawlings and myself and our guest, Dave Z, from the Exploding Heads podcast, from Jay the Dead's new horror movies, will join, and we're going to have a segment where we talk about the impact and influence of Wes Craven's Scream in 1996 and have a little friendly debate back and forth about how impacting that film actually was and whether it resuscitated horror at the time at at that point in the 90s, the late 90s in 1996 and what the sort of fallout was from Scream. So that's coming up. Additionally we will have a Screaming Online segment where Victor, myself and Trey will discuss Bird Box Barcelona, I'm going to bring you a Horror on the Big Screen review that just released in a somewhat limited release. It's not playing in a lot of theaters right now, but I'll give you the lowdown on that film and whether it's worth your time. But before we get in too deep to all this slashery goodness, I do want to turn the microphone, as it were, over to our friend Bill Van Vagel, who's going to talk about a specific slasher that he found in his searches in Tubi Terror. So here's Bill on The Redeemer.
1: Hello and welcome to Tubi Terrors, where the movies are never what you might expect. I'm your host, Bill Van Vagel, and for today's episode, the boys are doing an episode on slasher movies of different sorts, and so I thought I would dig deep into Tubi and try to find a slasher that I had not seen, didn't really know a lot about had actually seen the poster before, but that's really about it. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to jump in, find it, watch it, and report back to you guys, because you really want to know. I'm sure you do. <laughs> Anyways, there was quite a amount of choice for me to go to, and I went with one where the poster looked really interesting. Let's just say that. It's 1978's Class Reunion Massacre also known as The Redeemer Son of Satan. On IMDb gets a 5.1 rating, which actually isn't bad considering the age of the film and the amount of films from that era that started to come out. This is an early slasher. This is pre-Friday the 13th. Should have been maybe just post-Halloween. So it was kind of early in the trend. So it doesn't necessarily follow all the tropes that slashers that we now know of follow. So that kind of piqued my interest. So let's kind of go over the backing cast. It's directed by Constantine S. Gochis, G-O-C-H-I-S, and this is the only film he's directed. And one thing you're going to find out when I go over the cast, almost all of them, this was either their only film they were in or they were in limited, low-budget films or maybe some limited TV work. The lead is played by Damien Knight, who has no other credits to his name? Really, the only actor or actress in the cast that had done much of more of anything else was the lead female called Jeanette Arnett, Gianetta Arnett, who was in Pineapple Express, Boys Don't Cry, Pay It Forward, and she has a lot of TV work, a lot of single or low number of episodic TV. Work based on different shows that she's been on, but unless you really know who she is, she'd be you'd be hard pressed to find her in a crowd. Nikki Barthen, there is Nick Carter. The, they basically are part of an ensemble cast. So let me go over the description on IMDb. Six people are trapped within the confines of their old high school during their tenth high school reunion with a psychotic masked preacher who kills them off for their sinful lives they have made for themselves. So the other twist to this that I kind of liked was, there's a religious element to this. How many times can you say you've seen a movie with a religious tinge to a slasher? Other than a few that come here and there, they are few and far between. So, again, interest peaked. So what's, what's happening with this film? I'll give you the very quick overview. So it opens with a serene setting of a calm country lake. And a boy is walking down the road getting on a school bus. And someone is being shot at a nearby school by an unknown, older, mature killer. Where is this going? I have no idea. But it was enough to make me want to keep watching. Now, one of the downfalls to this one is the film is rather dark. I don't know if that's just the transfer or if it was done purposely or it's just an older film that they couldn't get any better quality of. So sometimes it makes it hard to see some of the details. Things may be happening that, you know, if you're watching a 4K or even a Blu-ray version, you can see in sharp contrast. This one is not one of those. So it opens with students going to a, a religious prep school, one of those ones where you're paying money for as opposed to the public system. And they're being preached at in a church service. So it's obviously a religious-based private school. You know, and this what the other thing I find on this that's a bit negative is the score. The score has kind of, you can tell it's on a budget. This is a low-budgeted film. And sometimes music gets a bit overbearing. It's not the most inventive of scores. So that, to me, a lot of organ-type music and a lot of repetitive music. And repetitive can sometimes work, but I don't know that it quite did on this one. So six former students, fast-forwarding 10 years, receive invites to this high school reunion based on the school that they've just attended. And we now know that there's a strong religious basis to the film because it opens with a religious service, a mass or a religious service of the Protestant in very prominent way. So they get this uh, invitation and they all show up. They thought it was going to be the entire graduating class or maybe even some of the other lesser younger classes, but it's just six people. Now, we're not really told why those particular six are chosen, other than their pictures were cut up out of a high school yearbook. So, portions of the film are seen through the eyes of an unknown killer. And at various points, he's preparing a body. You see him kind of go through the process of a deceased body. Again, some of the details aren't given why, other than it is a bit of an interesting watch to see what's going on with it. So those attending don't initially realize that they are the only ones invited. So they mill about this large, empty school. Now, in reality, it's probably just a larger house that they rented to film it. I don't think it was a school per se, but they set it up enough that, you know, it buys in close enough. They mill about and they find a dead body there in the science classroom. And there's maggots and things crawling around it. And they're not, they don't understand why. Because they've just had a big lavish meal. They're feeling good. They probably had a couple glasses of wine. And they're trying to, you know, recapture their youth and get memories back. And then they find a dead body. Someone is in and around the school and starts killing off the former students. So, I mean, it follows the formula in terms of there's a, a decent body count. People are there. They've had previous sins and they're going to atone for them. That's kind of the theme of this one. Now, they're killed off in some inventive ways. I'll grant the film that much. For example, there's one scene involving fire and a blowtorch. The killer is in multiple disguises. And I made notes thinking it was kind of like Vincent Price in Theater of Blood when he had different disguises based upon who he wanted to kill and for what reason. There's a little bit of that action in this. It becomes a mystery who is this killer? And they also can't seem to leave the school. There's people around the... There's someone who the killer is also around the outside of the school, so he doesn't let them leave. So can they get out of the school? And what is the killer's motivation? The, the former students still haven't picked up on what their motivation might be. The music and the lighting tries to set an ominous mood. Now, some of that may just be because the transfer isn't the best. But maybe it was purposefully done with the heavy organ and the dark lighting to try to make there's a big cloud over what's going on. And, you know, it's it's a dangerous and scary situation. The killer reveals themselves of sorts with about a half hour to go. And then you also find out that there's an accomplice. But again, it's not fully fleshed out at that point. It's religious themed and all of the former students are killed off because of their perceived sins. So it kind of goes down that route. It kind of plays out actually not that bad. The last 15, 20 minutes is not terrible. I mean, that sounds bad. It's worth watching, the last 15, 20 minutes. There are lots of slow points along the way. There's not a lot of background into the characters, other than we kind of know maybe after a a couple minutes of them talking what their background is in terms of superficial things. Maybe their profession or if they're married or what have you. But this kind of film, they're throwaway characters. You don't need to know a lot of backstory with them. It's, lighting is bad, as I've said a couple times. There's lots of loose ends. Sometimes, like I'm used to watching and you have to make some leaps and put some dots together and figure it out. But some of them, they just don't come together. But, I mean, we've all seen lots of slashers where that doesn't happen, so or where that does happen. So it didn't throw me off that much. You just kind of go, okay, whatever. Let's get on to the next scene. <laughs> but if you like early slashers, if you're a fan of the genre that hasn't th- seen this, if you like films with a twist, there is some inventiveness, and they take their own inventiveness and use religious symbolism. You, you kind of get something that, You know, it's not just kids going out to the park who are feeling adventurous and have had a couple drinks or smoked a joint and they're feeling frisky and they get killed. This isn't one of those. There's a reason why they're killed in the eyes of the killer. And it's one that, again, if you are a completist, if you're one that likes to say that they've seen as much as they can in the early uh, slasher genre, this might be worth a watch for you. So I kind of give it a, a middling mark. I give it six and a half out of 10 in terms of overall horror. Is it a must see? No, but is it one that you might be interested in seeing? I think you really should not should per se, but you would, if that's the mind frame that you have anyways, this movie is six and a half out of 10. It is worth a watch. I've seen a lot worse. Have a great, great weekend or whenever it is that this drops, it, And enjoy yourselves. If you have any suggestions for me for Tubi, send me a message or send them to Matt. They can pass me along. Have a great time. Enjoy the nice weather.
2: Hello, and welcome to another segment here on Horror Movie Podcast. On this particular one, we're going to be covering some of the, or or at least some of our favorite underrated slasher movies, you know. There are several slasher experts in our community and several people who are very well versed in the topics and tonight we couldn't find any of those. So (laughs) it is my uh, myself Trey Whetstone here and I'm going to be joined by uh, two of the other co-hosts here on Horror Movie Podcast. First up we have Victor Rodriguez.
3: Victor how are you doing this evening? Pretty good, yeah, um glad to be here and um, also not an expert on slashers, but I do appreciate some slashers and hopefully we'll hit on a few of those tonight
2: yep, awesome. we also have Nathan Bartleball Nathan how's it going? It's going awesome. I'm glad to be here, Trey, and podcasting with you and
0: Victor. We did have other people that were going to join. Matt was going. Matt Rawlings was going to join us. And I think Matt is probably more uh, more enthusiastic and more proficient in slashers than either of us. We've had different guests that as we were planning this uh, couldn't make it. However, I'm looking forward to this. I am... I like, as Victor said, some slashers. I appreciate and recommend, I think, a wide variety of them, but I also recognize that I may not enjoy all of those. And I'm actually a relative newbie to slashers because that was the one subgenre of horror I didn't really see a lot of growing up. And that includes, I saw some of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but I'll admit, until I got that box set of the uh, Friday Thirteenth movies last year, my wife and I started going through. them. I had never seen one of those films except for Part Nine, believe it or not, I which know. some people may say, "Hey, that's the least slasher of them all." That that series, I had never seen one from beginning to end uh, until I got that box set, and I had knew very, very little about slashers as a whole until, uh, and probably a lot of people like this, till the horror movie podcast series that they did on slashers where they brought in where uh, Jay and Wolfman and Dave brought in Greg Morgan from Land of the Creeps and they, that deep dive into slashers. And I came to learn of a lot of movies through there, but I had seen a lot of them. I, the 90s movies, I saw most of those films, those slasher films, with the exception of a few. But the 80s slashers is really sort of a blind spot for me. So I've been enjoying the past couple of years of delving into a subgenre that's mostly like new territory for me.
2: Yeah, that's interesting, and I was luckily lucky enough to you know grow up in that 90s period you were talking about, so Scream was huge, and there were other slashers that came off of that, so I was always into that and wanted to go back and dig into some of the other ones, so it's um, interesting to find out that I might have a little bit more of a, not of a leg up at this point. I think we're probably pretty well <laughs> caught up, Nathan, but um, I was definitely into slashers earlier on. But uh, Victor, what's your history with slashers in general?
3: Yeah. It's, it's just a matter of, uh, mainstream slashers, not really appealing to me as much as other types of horror films, but, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and they pretty much let anyone that looked like a teenager into R-rated films. So I saw the first Friday the 13th, the second and the third, and, uh, probably Halloween starting with the second movie in the theater. And then I rented the first one on beautiful VHS. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I've got, so I've got some experience and of course through the years, I've seen a few really good underrated slashers uh, that I'd love to talk about tonight. But um, yeah, uh, I was there along with everybody. I just, you know, I appreciated the movies like, Uh, Suspiria and, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I guess is kind of a slasher. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I would say those days. Yeah, uh, a little bit, a little bit more. But I kind of prefer movies with supernatural elements in them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think it's probably fair to say people probably... Know that I'm more of a Giallo fan, but I do like a lot of slashers. I'm just hit or miss on some of the bigger ones. So I'm sure we all feel the, the same way about certain ones. But um, yeah, so the purpose of this is we are we each picked something that we feel was an underrated slasher something that's not talked about, which is harder these days, especially when you've had things like um, was mentioned already. The slasher episode of horror movie podcast where they spent like four episodes back in the day with Greg Amortis, just going through the long list of slashers year by year. And then you have things of course, like Joe Bob's, which is brought things like pieces um, more into light and several other slashers. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely, it was a genre that was always popular, but I think we're finding more and more of these pop up. And I know mine at least was one that was kind of uncovered or given a new coat of paint by one of these boutique labels so um but yeah is there anything that we want to talk about other than slashers in general here before we get into our picks yeah i think something that
0: we can discuss because again we were we were originally gonna have about five movies mentioned here we're gonna probably have three that we talk about in a little bit of detail and then we'll probably go in and sort of just uh before we recorded this we started sort of throwing titles out which other ones can we mention and I think it's probably fair to say that what we consider underrated or uh, I think offbeat may be a better term for this segment because that's really where this started. How about offbeat slashers? Because everyone has their own sort of definition, I think, of what a slasher is. And I do think there is a certain definition that once you get outside of that, you're not really talking about slashers as much anymore. So I think I want to just make aware to everyone uh, two things. One is we're going to be probably mentioning movies that might creep outside of – what you individually may consider a slasher, but I would encourage you that if you haven't seen them, maybe check them out. And also, we'll probably, I know we're going to talk of at least one movie, maybe a couple of movies, that really wouldn't necessarily be a slasher, but would be sort of the the progenitor to the slasher, that would sort of be the precursor. We know there's a lot of movies that were sort of the proto slashers, but there are some even more proto than that. Uh, a couple that may have introduced ideas that later gestated into this whole genre. So look out for that kind of stuff. I think we'll be talking about one or two of those along the way. Um, and I do want to shout out something. I've had a couple people uh, mention to me and one of those being my co-host of Phantom Galaxy, Bill Van Vagel, who, who kind of felt like there was no real gore hound to champion Terrifier 2 <laughs> on the last episode when we were doing the Chainsaw Awards. And... Um, And I, you know, I think that's a fair point. I said up front that that's not exactly my kind of movie. But I did. I I do think it's worth mentioning that Terrifier 2, like, because Bill was like, hey, I don't think anybody else had that other top ten. That was Bill's favorite horror film of 2022. And I know a lot of other people that felt the same way. And I think if you are the person who loves gore, that kind of movie like that's like christmas to you <laughs> terrifier too so <laughs> i wanted to throw out there i did that we we hear you we'd love to hear from more people that uh if you really love terrifier please drop us a line talk to us we'll we'll uh, I'll get on uh twitter and and we want to hear from you because it is true i don't think that me personally i can say that that movie wasn't in that wheelhouse but i was watching it feeling that hey and, and I was sitting next to him. I was sitting next to Steve Morgan, who was definitely that guy that was like, "This is what I want," and it's really cool when that happens. I really appreciate that. So, we we definitely need to hear some people that can speak passionately about that. Uh, I am what I loved about the movie is that you could see that they really cared about what they were doing, and it's all up there for people who like that. So we may, we may have to find some of our gore enthusiasts that can represent these movies a little bit better. I do admit that's not
2: me. Uh, yeah, I absolutely get it. That there are a lot of people who loved a film like that. And um, just because that's not necessarily our cup of tea, which Nathan, I think you were probably the highest of the three of us on it. Um, maybe I, I liked it so
0: much more than the, than the first one. And I liked it enough that I actually will see the third one.
3: Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I'm very happy for its success, you know. Yeah, Um, me too. More more than anything. Yeah, it's it's not really my type of thing, but for what it wants to be, it really succeeds and exceeds.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And if you want, if you, you know, if you are feeling lonely about that, go to any horror convention. I've been to a couple recently, and it is, you can see its impact. Like, you can see people have really embraced it in a way that i haven't seen you know you look at the, how how far it had to come to you know it's like got on netflix it began with with the the the, the uh, anthology film and built from there and it's come a long way in a little bit of time you know they've really they've got i mean the fact that that movie played in mainstream theaters to the extent that it did in the way in which it did that's that's like breaking ground really
3: yeah
2: yeah Absolutely. And we're to the point where I thought somebody called out the other day that something um, was starring uh, David Howard Thornton, who was playing Art the Clown. But um, I can't remember that now. Uh, anyway, taking us on a tangent here. So, it's OK, we yeah, <laughs> need a
0: Calma, we're going to have Trey dress up like the little clown girl and put that images on
2: Twitter so that you know, to make up for it. Don't uh, worry. Coincidentally, about it. that is my favorite <laughs> character in the film. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anyone. Yeah, sign up for the OnlyFans uh, where I dress up as the little little terrifier, the clown girl. I did offer yeah. you to wear the hot
0: pants and the and the angel wings. So hey, it was something, right?
3: OnlyFans, <laughs> indeed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, okay, well, um, I think that's a as good a segue as any as we're going to get on this episode. Um, let's <laughs> let's go ahead, um, Victor. You want to go ahead and start out and give us your pick. Uh, since yes. Probably chronologically, it is the
3: first one here. Yes, um, I picked an old movie, and uh, I do mean old in um, in the way it looks. It's uh, it's called Peeping Tom. It's from 1960, which interestingly is the same year Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho came out. Um, but this is directed by. Michael Powell, the great Michael Powell, who wrote and directed, you know, famous, famous Hollywood movies like uh, The Red Shoes and A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, Black Narcissus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Black Narcissus, gorgeously shot films. And Peeping Tom is shot in rather the same way, like bright colors, definitely things that Mario Bava saw in the movie theater and was like mhm I want to do that you know uh, but man uh, Peeping Tom is sort it's sort of a proto slasher because it's so it's so ancient it's, it's you know the 1960 you couldn't really show too much visceral gore on screen so most of the murders happen off screen but the thing with Peeping Tom is, the content is very disturbing. Like the way it's presented, is um, is really intense. It's the it's one of the first times you get to go into a a psychosis of a you have a, a villainous protagonist, main character. this these are all very revolutionary things. As a matter of fact, they were so revolutionary that. The British, and this is a British film, uh, the British hated it. And not only did they hate it, but they terminated Michael, the great Michael Powell's career because this was the movie he always wanted to make. And once this movie came out, they were like, "Okay, you're gone. Like, we're not interested in you anymore.
0: Yeah, he was like all erased, like like 20 some bangers before this and lots more movies. And he 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 made a few more after this. But nothing that really like hit because it's like, it was the, it was the repulsion that they had towards
3: it. Right. Um, Yeah. It was too much for people. this, this really reminds me of in the music world, you know, uh, Igor Stravinsky did the Rite of Spring in the late teens or maybe early 1920s. And it had the same effect on Paris when it was released. Like people absolutely hated it. They, they left the performance And then uh, a few years later, a critic saw it and was like, this is actually a work of genius. And then people started getting into it. And then a couple of decades later, it's in Fantasia, a Disney movie for everyone, you know. So uh, Peeping Tom, likewise, was reviled at first. And then a couple of decades later, Martin Scorsese in one of his documentaries uh, called attention to how great it is. And uh, it started gaining popularity. But I still feel like it's talked about way less than Psycho, which I also love. But um, Peeping Tom is a brilliantly written uh, film that was definitely, uh, you know, forming of the genre. And uh, man, it talks about all kinds of stuff. I mean, the, the basic premise is a young guy and um, he's played by Carl uh, uh, Bohm, um, who's the uh, the son of a fam- the famous conductor. Um, and uh, <laughs> he is completely beige, uh, interestingly enough, which I think is a, is a great comment about how killers can be someone you see in everyday life. Like they just blend into the crowd. He's just a good looking young man. He's like blonde kind of tan and he wears a a brown trench coat. So he just looks beige the whole time. And uh, I think that's intentional. And um, he just drifts through life. His real job is uh, being a focus puller for uh, a a photo studio or movie studio. Uh, And he uses this to indulge in his real hobby, which is killing women. And the way he kills women is he uses a camera and films them to the point that he slays them with one of the, uh, one of the legs of the camera has a concealed knife in it and he murders them with the camera, but the camera set up in a way that it reflects the image back at the victim so they can see themselves being murdered, which is, which is really a really screwed up thing to, to think about um but i hadn't i haven't seen that since um strange days the movie strange days uh came oh my out- gosh yeah yeah in a science fiction way they handle that exact same theme um but this is the first movie to do it as far as i know and um man it's it's really intense so you have him uh slaying a women of the night and, uh, this actress that works at his studio, that's and- an
2: especially, that's the one I think I like the most Victor, sorry to derail you there, but oh yeah,
3: no, you, you like the, uh, the studio murder the best. Yeah. 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 It's like it's that awesome. whole scene. It's, it's got great stuff, um, where, you know, that, that's the, the way the killings evolve is in that murder. You, you, that's the first time the victim knows he's up to something sinister uh, and is not totally surprised by the murder, but she's like, what are you doing with that? <laughs> you know, and then, mm-hmm. um, and then she's gone. This is again, this is 1960. So you don't, you don't really see the murder graphically portrayed, but the, the body is hanging around the set. And, um, one of the really cool things is, uh, he, you know, uh, the, the, the peeping Tom guy, but by the way, the, the term peeping Tom, I think comes from the Lady Godiva legend. If you're, if you're into that, um. Uh, nerdy folklore stuff like I am. (laughs) Uh, But in any case, you know, he's uh, he's hanging around the. um, Yeah, Mark. Mark is the name of uh, is the name of the killer uh, that he's hanging around the set and the police show up and they're talking about the murders (laughs) in front of him. And I love that. That's very Hitchcockian. And interestingly enough, yeah, Michael Powell worked with Michael Hitch uh, with uh, Alfred Hitchcock when hitchcock was doing silent movies i believe uh-huh. he was like an assistant director or something like that um so there's yes yeah yeah there's there's a shared uh history with these these two great directors and um i just i feel like the utter failure of peeping tom uh, commercial failure i should say and the utter success of psycho which was made in the american system and released in america first um is very interesting in the same year that just tells you how the psyche of the two societies were different um and uh, and what they could tolerate or not and um you know in peeping tom there's also a lot of commentary about repressed british sexuality um about uh you know how people bought porn in those days and by porn i mean uh you know Photos of partially clad women, like with maybe a few buttons undone (laughs) in the uh, newspaper stand. And then, scandalous. Yeah. Yeah. When you you bought the the original photos and then they handed it to you wrapped in newspaper so nobody, so everybody could suspend disbelief that you weren't buying nude photos (laughs) in in town. But, uh, but anyway, Peeping Tom. Very disturbing because it's from the killer's point of view. Nobody had seen anything like this before, uh, and it's still very rare to see it on screen. Uh, and they go into the the the, the horrible uh, past of of Mark and how he was traumatized by his father filming him at all times, and it, like the you know he wouldn't turn the camera off, and <laughs> and the the explanations are very weird. Like he wanted to film the reaction of fear in a child. So he, cho- he chose his own son for this. And of course it's going to have an effect. Uh, and um, Mark tries to get well, but the, the remedy is going to last three years. So he gives up on it. And um, there's a, the the, the last um, Hitchcock uh, Powell connection I'm going to say is that Anna Massey is turns into Mark's love interest in the movie mm-hmm. Uh, uh, she's a very innocent girl that lives in his building. And another creepy thing that Mark is doing is he is wired the building for sound so he can listen to what his tenants, uh, he's the, he's the landlord of this building and he can listen to what the tenants are saying. Uh, so, uh, he can have his fantasies, I guess, or is, I, I don't know. I don't know what his intention is there, but um, but in any case, he loves recording people, and um, and Anna Massey plays Helen, who you know sort of falls in love with this attractive beige landlord in her <laughs> building, and um, and uh, and her mother is weirdly repelled and encouraging for her daughter to uh, get to know Mark. It's it, that is very strange to me, almost like it's. Framed like a romance, which I find very disturbing. I, I think if it had just stayed mm-hmm. completely disturbing, it would be even more successful. But um, but anyway, Anna Massey is in Frenzy. She's like she is yeah. one of the victims. Mm-hmm. Of Hitchcock's Frenzy, which is another great uh, mo- another great slasher movie, I, I should say. Which you know, in the color years when. Uh, uh, <laughs> when uh, Hitchcock's career was sort of winding down, but uh, it's, it's highly recommended. Like it's my favorite later Mm -hmm. Hitchcock movie. Um, Yeah. I'm
2: with you, Victor. I think that's his last gasp. I feel like that's his last great movie.
3: Yeah. And I I feel like it's almost like he, he uh, Hitchcock may have made that movie in response to peeping Tom or maybe to call attention to, to peeping Tom being forgotten. Um, But in any case, we have Peeping Tom. I, I believe it's available on Criterion now. Uh, you know, you can you can see it. I, you can probably see it on Tubi. Um, shout out to Bill Van Vigo. But anyway, uh, I, I really, really liked Peeping Tom. It's very involving. Um, if you can get past the old style of filming uh, of it, it's really a great script, a great film, wonderful performances highly highly recommended and of course it gave birth to i mean you look at scenes like the the point of view camera murder scenes carpenter totally ripped off for halloween one of my favorite movies of all time um i mean there are elements that made its way into maniac both the 1981 and the 2012 one uh the movie spree the recent movie spree the, the movie manhunter by michael mann um You know, it's really, it goes on and on. It was very influential. Like, movie makers love this movie, even if the public didn't. Um, So, yeah, do yourself a favor. Go out, rent it, see it, stream it. It's worth it.
0: Yeah, and Victor, and sadly, it's, it's one of those movies, I'm hoping that they fix this. But I believe that as far as Criterion goes, there's only been a DVD release of it. And uh, that DVD release, I think, is it's a couple extra bucks now because it hasn't been. Uh, they they haven't had a Blu Ray or a 4K of it that popped up. Um, I believe it's still only on the DVD. There is a Blu Ray on Amazon for about twenty two dollars. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not. I didn't look closely. It actually may be a region. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a region B, so region two. That if you have a North American player, you probably won't be able to play it. But this is in my opinion a great movie uh it's one of michael powell's great movies and he has a lot of them they were very different of the films he made with um uh pressburger before this and ones he made on his own were very different than peeping tom but i think what's interesting about it is that angle that you're talking about involving the cameras and him filming like that just doesn't dovetail with slashers but it dovetails with a lot of the modern horror that came after it, it was very much, and that's what sets it apart from Psycho, I think, is it dealing with that uh, that media aspect of how do we deal with these tools that we have at our disposal that maybe we didn't previously have him, him taking the images of the women and his father filming him before that, and like the way that this technology kind of plays in with uh, our psychology. That stuff carries on all the way when we get to found footage horror films. And like you said, movies like Spree and even Black Mirror, right? Like some of the the recent Black Mirror episodes, we'll we'll probably have a segment where we'll be talking about that a little bit, uh, have looked at horror through that lens. And quite honestly speaking, some of the tricks or the perspectives that these more modern films are taking aren't necessarily any more complex or sophisticated than what Peeping Tom is doing in the 1960s, like right Absolutely. at the cusp of all of this stuff.
3: Yeah, 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 I think you nailed it. Yeah, found footage, definitely. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that people love about found footage movies, uh, found footage movies, is that it, it sort of makes the audience part of the conspiracy, like they're watching this horror unfold. And I think that's what people, that's one of the things that people found so disturbing about peeping Tom is that the audience is included in Mark's psychosis. Like they're forced to watch him obsess over these women and, you know, act out on his trauma as, as a kid and uh, people just couldn't handle that. Like they were like, Oh, nothing like that. Like why, you know, why, why am I being forced to watch this? Yeah. And speaking of that, I
2: love that Victor and it's not maybe, not the most slasher part of this, but when he's showing those home movies and the whole stuff with him and Helen, uh, the characters in this movie, I think that's very creepy and very unsettling. And I think it just adds to the overall feel of it. But mm-hmm. uh, you've, you hit the nail on the head and you said, I don't, I wouldn't say this is not only slightly less talked about than psycho. I would say this is in a whole other realm because I feel like people don't talk about this one. At all horror fans don't talk about this movie. Um, and I don't know why, because it is a really good film. I suspect and, a lot actually haven't seen it, uh, if I'm being honest. That could absolutely be yeah. true, but um, this is definitely the classiest film we're going to talk about tonight for sure. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I I think this is an excellent film, and I think it should be talked about more. And I'm glad that this was the one you picked, but... Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to call that out there that this is a very unsettling film and it's got a lot of cool, different ways to film that whole slasher angle. I think people usually talk about this as like a proto slasher, but I don't I don't necessarily love that term. I mean, it's either a slasher or it's not. But um, anyway, what else do you guys want to say on Peeping Tom? One
0: thing I want to mention just in, in the terms of its comparison to Psycho is it. Psycho does sort of hold, uh, when you get to the psychology part of Psycho, I love Psycho, I think it's a masterpiece. Don't you know, I I always feel like I'm saying critical things about movies on here, and it's not really critical, but at the end of Psycho, there's sort of that like info dump, right, about what is actually going on. And if you've never seen Psycho, I'm talking beyond like the big surprises, but there's a moment where a doctor comes in and kind of lays out all of the boilerplate stuff, right, like in just a dialogue. I personally think that's probably the weakest part of the film, which I still consider, a, you know, five star 10 out of 10, whatever you want to call it masterpiece. And because it's sort of just related, it's sort of a lot of like psychological babble that is thrown at the audience to explain what has happened. And we are looking at Anthony Perkins while we're hearing. It, and that, that has a certain effect, but peeping Tom, like similar to what you're saying, Victor, it, delves so specifically into what was done and viscerally in the way that we can see it and see it continue played out by how he interacts with these women that it makes it feel uncomfortable and kind of like like you said it makes us the peeping toms it, it puts us mm-hmm. in the role later on when we get movies like uh i think it's um, man bites dog and stuff like that like you get to these yeah. movies that are darker and more disturbing and even a Henry portrait of a serial killer I think at that point you're straying out of slasher here I think it keeps those those things that eventually become tropes but it doesn't give us the distance like we some of the slasher movies we're going to talk about tonight and some of the classic slasher movies some ones in the 80s I've heard people call them comfort food and you're like well how can that be com- so violent it's so awful there is I think a certain point when these slasher movies kind of venture into the realm of exaggeration to the point that what we're left with is the tropes in a fun way. We know what's coming next. We like to be scared, or but we we like that to a degree. Peeping Tom keeps it so human that it never
3: stops making you feel kind of gross. Right. Yep. Um, and I think uh, when when Carpenter updated the the whole POV through through the killer's eyes thing with Halloween, he did it perfectly. Like he gives you a taste of it at the beginning, and then that's it and then and then you're out you're then you're the audience you can enjoy the movie and, and like a right. roller, roller coaster ride it is um but you know i mean he's standing on the shoulder of giants i mean as much as i love john carpenter's career uh i mean he there would be no opening of halloween without this movie so uh you yeah. know a debt is owed and uh it's definitely yeah. worth checking out
2: yeah and that's another one victor where it's like um Carpenter, I've heard him reference in interviews and stuff, Psycho and things like that, or even um, the Argento films when he's talking about his own. But um, I don't know if I've heard him mention Peeping Tom, but it's absolutely, like you said, very much the point of view vantage point. Yeah.
0: And it does get sort of absorbed because it does also, to be fair, show up in Black Christmas even before it makes its way to Halloween.
3: Yeah, that's true. Very true. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, Black Christmas versus Halloween is another interesting you know, comparison because, yeah, Black Christmas came out first. There's a lot of similarities between the films, but um, Halloween was super successful. Black Christmas wasn't. Uh, but I think it's becoming a lot more accepted now, mm-hmm. and maybe that'll happen with P.P. Tom. I don't know. And I think
0: I want to throw this out there because it is unfortunate that it sort of did sabotage, in a sense, Powell's career. But I think maybe one of the reasons that allowed it to be so uh, influential and in a way that maybe that while, you know, Psycho was, but but, Peeping Tom ended up being maybe, you know, you can see the DNA of it maybe deeper when you actually look at the slashers uh, that we have when we get to these, maybe what really allowed it to be like that is some of Powell's uh, the fact that Powell was esteemed at one point, right? Like that cinephiles looked at Powell's movies and knew of them and film students were, were flocking to this. And then amidst all of these great films, you know, here sits peeping Tom and they absorbed that as well. So I think maybe the prestige of Michael Powell making a film like this, even though it was devastating to him may have been, I've, I've read stories where, uh, specifically I remember hearing that Martin Scorsese and, uh, and of all people, uh, George Romero kept renting uh, Tales from Hoffman, another uh, Powell movie, mm-hmm. and one would rent it and he'd be like, who's this Who's this Romero kid? He's got the movie out <laughs> and I can't <laughs> rent it. And then the Ramiro's like, this Scorsese guy had it out all the time. So I think that, you know, when you're in film school and you're, you're coming across Michael Powell, they were coming across Carpenter, I'm sure, too, coming across and Bob Clark and all these people. Coming across Powell. And so I think it's great when people that are esteemed, that are on the prestige, when they take a shot at something like this at a point when it's not popular. I think that's important.
3: Yes. Yes. Totally agree. Oh, and you know, before we move on, uh, I just wanted to say if any of you listening want to take a super deep dive into the Hitchcock film Psycho, I did a. Total deconstruction on uh, Andred the Blind's podcast, Freaks and Psychos. I think it's episode two, uh, but we you know, for a couple hours we talk about all the details about Psycho, including what you talked about, Nathan, the uh, the, the psychologist scene, and uh, how Hitchcock didn't want it uh, in the movie, but he finally acquiesced because. That's what the film studio thought would sort of wrap it up very nicely uh, and l- let people leave the movie theater happy. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, um, yes, uh, great movies, both of them. Yeah, absolutely
2: great choice, Victor. And thank you for bringing a little class to this uh, this episode, the slasher <laughs> episode. But um, yeah, that's a great pick, and. I think we'll go ahead and sandwich mine in between your two's pick here. And (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the best way to go. Mm, Majest Franco sandwich. Um, So, so it it could be a lot of things salty, (laughs) salty. Uh, Okay, so the one that I chose and probably is a pretty big surprise to people who know me as I'm not a fan of Jesus Franco, but this is the one exception and that is Bloody Moon from 1981. Now, this has a lot of the tropes of the slasher film while I think it still tries to ride the line between Giallo and slasher. And I think that's just those European sensibilities coming into it. But we do have, um, very much a cold open where we have, um, I believe his name is Miguel, who is a disfigured man. And we kind of get that inciting incident where something happens to him. He turns, he's a killer and that's not a spoiler. This is all very much a setup to the film. Um, and then we flash forward. We're at an all-girls school, of course, because it's Europe. And then we have this Miguel character getting released from an institution or asylum. And it kind of plays out from there as far as following these young girls who are there to um, learn different languages. It is a language school. And I think one of the cool parts about that, too, that I like about the setting of this film is is when they're in these booths kind of learning the language and they're all they've got their headphones on and they're all in their different booths. And I I like that. I like the setting. I mean, anyone that knows me knows if you say, you know, all girls school in a horror movie in the 70s and 80s, I'm a, I'm in for that. Um, and and this does get a little um, a little sleazy, I'm sure. And yeah, some of the effects do look like they were made for you know, 15, 20 bucks, but they are all practical, of course. And they are all, um, you know, Jess Franco never worked with big budgets, but I think here he does something where he's making the best of what he has. And we do get some pretty cool moments and some pretty tense moments as well. And I do end up liking our main character and seeing her journey through this. And there are, and where we get into, you've got the slasher elements where people are being picked off one by one. They're dying in very brutal ways. Um, and you've got that cold open with the, uh, what do they call that? The prior evil or the past evil or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have all of that. And then when you get into the reveal, you're definitely in the Giallo territory. You're in full on uh, twist and turns and everything else. Um, I'm not going to go too much into it, but... I think that's what I love is it takes the slasher and it gives it those, um, Western European sensibilities in the filmmaking. And yeah, um, there's a, there's a scene I like in the film where, you know, there's one, um, girl in this film who is always bragging about her sexual exploits. And, um, you know, one day she tells the girls that she's got someone over in her room and, the, the scene that transpires there is pretty, uh, pretty humorous in the middle of this uh, slasher film. But yeah, that was my pick. I stumbled across this one, and this is one that Severin has put out a Blu-ray for. Um, and you can also catch this one on Tubi, or you can rent it. Uh big surprise that this one is on Tubi, but um I think this one will surprise you if you haven't seen Bloody Moon. I feel like it's one that not a ton of people talk about, but um it's one that I liked when I checked out.
3: Yeah, I, I liked it too. Uh I, I saw it maybe two years ago for the first time, and uh I, I thought it was it was fairly good. But I I do like uh, some of uh Jesus Franco's work. Uh but I, I I just uh, just looked it up on IMDb, and, and there's this uh, trivia note that uh, Franco was told by the producers of the movie that Pink Floyd was going to score the mm-hmm. film. Uh, they didn't, of course. They, yes. I mean, they, a lot of people were told Pink Floyd was going to score their movie. <laughs> <Yeah. And laughs> I think they only ever scored one, besides The Wall, obviously. Uh, yeah, um, right. Zabriskie uh, Point is the only one that they oh, actually huh. scored. Yeah. But um, but anyway, I could see
0: Pink Floyd just getting distracted, like <laughs> yeah, like they tripped out and like you know what? I Feel like we're supposed to do something this weekend. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> I have this note that says "Bloody Moon." Does this mean anything to you guys? <laughs> mm. And then they proceed to probably you know stare at the moon and write a new song. But um, I just saw this for the first time, and I was I was Trey kind of surprised like. Trey chose a just Franco movie. And I do think there's a large swath of Franco stuff that is probably, you could probably swap the titles and no one would notice, but he does have a lot of, he has got these pieces in his filmography that you're like, where did that come from? Like, or, you know, that point in time when he did a, tried to do a very faithful, like rendition of Dracula with Christopher Lee, you know, it's like, he'd have these moments where he, he would adhere more to what you would think be the typical genre stuff and then there's sometimes when it was just like straight sleaze and that's not to say there's not sleaze in this movie because there is
2: yeah yeah um it's definitely i mean but is there any more than a typical like slasher that we would No, see no no it's not it's like, not yeah. over the top it, it's a, maybe a little
0: bit more than some of the, the giallos but i would say yeah when you yep. get to some of the and, and it's less the actual content and it's more the twisted nature you know like there's a Franco movie, yeah. so there's incest. You know,
2: it's those sorts of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you see that a lot with Giallo's as well. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. where but, I think it's got yeah. one foot in Slasher, one foot in Giallo's. It and does. Uh,
0: but I, what I like about it, because the, the thing is, because Franco turned out so many movies, what sometimes is lacking in some of his other films, my personal opinion, uh, the ones that aren't so great, is he's churning them out so quickly that they lack some of the atmosphere or the – Because when he was on point, he could really, like, draw you in with that atmosphere and the stylistic uh, tricks that he had. Sometimes he'd be making a movie so quickly that it would just be the surface level. you would be like, yeah, that's a Jess Franco movie. But nothing, you know, it was like that was the typical stuff. This movie, I thought, had great atmosphere and style Mm -hmm. to it. And it was almost like he was freed up. It was like, okay, well, we got this basic these basic elements to play with. And then he hadn't necessarily done this before, at least not exactly like this. And so it seemed like he was very focused in on putting his spin on it. And so you got to see, I don't know, it had better atmosphere. I think I was really able to sit there and be like, Oh, he, he put some time into this. There's more of his artistic stylings in the film uh, than some of, maybe some of his
2: really, really quick ones. Yeah and I think that's the difference the main difference between um Franco and Jean Renelin is um Jean Renelin did sit there and focus on the atmosphere at the probably the um at <laughs> the expense of the story or a coherent OK, a coherent plot at some points Ooh. um but where I do I do like Renelin better with his atmosphere and the yeah. um what he built the worlds that he builds and the fantasy stories that he builds uh, not that kind of fantasy Nathan um sometimes yeah. both. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's always both. Um uh, but yeah, I I was really surprised by this one. I um didn't know a lot going in. I like I said, I had the baggage of other Franco movies, but yeah, I think what you said he did a great job with the atmosphere.
0: What is that when they call it? Is it half and half when you fill it halfway up with lemonade and halfway with iced tea? It's
4: yes, like halfway
0: yeah. giallo and half slash like if you're a slasher fan of the more like Americanized slasher, like you'll watch this and be like, I'm on board. And if you're more of the giallo person, you'll watch this and be on board, but you'll be able to see both pieces, but it's like, yeah, it's like half, half.
2: <laughs> yep. Yes. yes.
3: Yeah. So. Really good pick. I, you know, I never, never seen that movie discussed or never heard that movie discussed on any of the podcasts I listened to. Uh, I just stumbled upon it a couple of years ago by pure luck. So um, mm-hmm. I think it's really cool that you mentioned it. Yep. Cool. So that'll wrap
2: up my pick. Nathan, that (laughs) leaves you. And, uh, I think we saved the weirdest one for last. At least
0: we did. And I went weird, probably on purpose. Um, so, and I, and I will admit that this is inspired a little bit. I don't want to rehash any, uh, discussions or, or, or sort of, uh, debates, but, We've heard the we've heard the debates that go back about what did, absolutely defines a slasher, and even Trey and Victor myself were talking about this beforehand, and we we're trying to find definitions online. And you know, there's a lot of talk about well, it's the weapon that the killer uses that defines it, or their origination. That you know, do they always need to be a human being, and are, are a human being who's been traumatized, uh, which really does lend out from the psycho and from the Peeping Tom connections, you know, you can kind of track that forward. And for the most part, I think those things are always true. But when we do have that classic, is Turbinator a slasher film and what makes it or doesn't make it? I think one of the things it brought up is, well, you know, the question was, can the killer not be a human being? Now, I still haven't necessarily popped the one in my head where that's the case where, oh, other there's a, there's a movie that came out last year where the killer was not human But I think that it was such an homage that everyone sort of, you know, uh, didn't pay as much attention to it and kind of let it go. And I will just throw out that it was a Christmas film, a new Christmas film for 2022. Mm -hmm. You can figure that out. But outside of that, I was looking for a slasher where maybe that wasn't the case, but a slasher that did stray into other genres. Because I think when we come to is a slasher, why does the slasher always have to be a human being? I think it's because if it's not a human being your desire is to focus on something else about it. Like if I've got a time traveling robot from the future, it's kind of boring to have him kill people with a knife. If I've got a werewolf, I don't want the werewolf stalking people with a knife and, you know, talking about his problems. But the, and so I think that element is why we don't see them. Not that necessarily a killer has to absolutely be human being, but a film that's about something other than human being is going to stray into other genres. So while I didn't find a film that fits this exactly, I did try to find one that cross-melded genres in such a way that it came pretty close. And this movie is called Strange Behavior. It's also known as Dead Kids. It's a 1981 film. It's directed by Michael Laughlin, and and it was co-written by Bill Condon. And Bill Condon has done a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. He's done a lot of considered prestigious films. He's done – he did do in horror uh, genre – he did do um, the second Candyman film, Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. He also did, I think, a really underrated film about horror films called Gods and Monsters from 1998 mm-hmm. that had Ian McKellen playing uh, James Whale. And that's a, that's a wonderful film. I highly recommend it. But he's gone on to win Oscars and and you know make films that are a little bit more prestigious. Uh, again, he was just a co-writer on this. But... You could definitely see sort of his style. This is a it's a co-production between the U.S., New Zealand, and Australia, and it was supposed to be the first installment of something that was going to be called the Strange Trilogy because Strange Behavior was sort of the original title, but it was released other places as Dead Kids. The idea was the Strange Trilogy was going to be an homage not to uh, slasher films but to pulp horror films of the fifties. So. Uh, the kind of pulp sci-fi and, and uh, the kinds of films that dealt with mad scientists that sometimes dealt with aliens, a movie that if you haven't heard of strange behavior, a movie you may have heard of, it's still an under the radar film. It's called strange invaders also directed by Michael Laughlin came out in 1983. The title is headed in the right direction. You are talking about maybe extraterrestrials and aliens in that film. Strange behavior doesn't do that, but it has that same idea behind it, that there's a sci-fi sort of veneer to the story. And that pops up pretty quickly, but in almost every other way, this is going to give you the beats of an 80 slasher that you're familiar with, with a bit of weirdness along the way. And uh, I'll get into the plot in a very basic way. Cause I don't want to go too far but the opening scene, which is you have uh, this small town, this is Galesburg, uh, Illinois, uh, even though the film itself has a very like New England, not New England, excuse me, a New Zealand sensibility to it. It has that sort of very weird eccentricity that you would, uh, you would figure into a film like Dead Alive or something like that or some of the works of Peter Jackson where there's a certain kind of vibe, but the film is, you know, Theoretically, it's taking place in Illinois. And this boy in the very beginning, this young guy, he's the son of the mayor. He's in his home. The electricity goes out. And we have that classic scene where he goes down into the basement to check on the the power. And this is the first scene where you get this feeling that something's off. And you can't tell. I couldn't tell for the beginning uh, first reel or so of the film whether I was watching a spoof or a movie that was just headed in a different direction because he lays the flashlight down in an effort to get to the fuse box. And then he stops and begins to just do shadow puppets on the wall. while, <laughs> while the killer is sort of coming up behind it, but just it stops and he's doing the little birds and you're like, what is happening? And meanwhile, you're watching the, in, the, this murder take place and then the film kind of launches in. It's got a cast as Michael Murphy is playing the, uh, so there's a, there's a couple of characters that we meet right off the bat and we have Peter who's this young guy he's a senior in school his uh dad is a, is the local policeman and he's he wants to his dad is trying to encourage him to uh go to school to get to get out of the town and you know kind of spread his wings he's he doesn't know if he wants to do that he ends up on uh, this university. He sits in and listens to a course with his, his buddy, Oliver. And they end up talking to this professor, whose her name is Gwen Parkins. She's giving this lecture, and they're talking about scientific tests here. You can earn a little bit of extra money if you come and be a test subject. So you have that, that introduced right up at the front. But at the same time, you've got these murders happening in the town. Michael Murphy's in the cast. Louis Fletcher from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is in the yeah. film, in uh, in not the role that you might expect when you hear about these goings ons and the and the the creepy professors. She's she's in a different role, which is kind of nice. Dan Shore is in the film, uh, Fiona Lewis and Arthur Dignam. So it's got an interesting cast, and then you follow the kids who are getting together, going to the parties. Peter is involved with. Uh, he's got this young girl he's interested in. He, these people are being killed. You've got the teens at the party. You've got the cops looking for the killer. You have a killer in a mask. And by the way, this is pretty cool. Wearing a Tor Johnson mask, uh, a Tor Johnson Ed Wood mask, if you will, from, from uh, one of those Ed Wood, maybe uh, Bride of the Monster or one of those films. And that's a very weird image is this killer kind of running through the night. With a big, giant, oversized Tor Johnson head, because it's clear that the body is not a big, burly man. It's like a normal sized person, and then a big Tor Johnson head. So that's pretty strange. As the movie goes on, we have a couple plots running parallel because we keep coming back to the laboratory and the experiments and the discussions about. Uh, behavioral testing. There's a weird video involving chickens early on. And that element in Thread keeps getting a little bit stranger. While we are, are very much fixated on a who done it, we're fixated on kills. Uh, there's dismemberments, there's stabbings, there's everything you'd have in a typical slasher. But the story keeps opening up and becoming a little bit more like an X-Files episode, really. Uncover the greater, the grander scheme. And these are not... Spoilers. This is where the movie is going right from the beginning. You keep asking, "Why am I?" See? If you didn't know the sci-fi origins, you'd be sitting and saying, "Why am I?" Why are we focusing on this? Why are we focusing on the this this group of experiments and these particular professors and things like that? And then the movie starts to sort of bring it together, and it just keeps getting weirder. I'm not saying it goes fully out there and there's some kind of mind-boggling revelation, but where it does go is definitely stranger than your average slasher. And yet I think it hits every box we've just mentioned and graphs on a couple extra. But it give, if you're a slasher fan, I think you'll get into this. And it's fun. There's a very bizarre dance sequence with somebody. An extraordinarily 80s and probably also extraordinarily New Zealand-ish sequence that uh, this dance scene at the party is one of the weirdest – like. That scene in and of itself makes me feel like like everyone's been taken over by body snatch. That's a great scene, Nathan. I don't know what you're talking about. But it almost doesn't have anything to do with the uh, the rest of the plot. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and that's a that's like a costume party, isn't it? Is this? It is. Is it set on? I can't remember. Is it? Is I don't it set think it's set or? on
0: Halloween. I did, the, the, but they're just having a weird costume party. That's what's strange about the film because it's just as everyone's being murdered, everyone's like, let's have a costume party. You know, it leans <laughs> into those things in such a weird way that you do question: is this a spoof? Am I supposed to like check that off and be like, that's the thing nobody would do? But the movie exists in a world that would fit with like, I married a a monster from space, or you know. Uh, something like um, the brain that wouldn't die. Like it's got that weird innocence to it at the same time that's hitting the slasher beats. The other thing that really makes the movie stand out for me and what brought it to my attention last year around my birthday, my sister who's really into uh, vinyl and buying records and stuff. She was at record store day. She's like, Nathan, I think I found the right present for you. She goes, I don't even know what it is, but I'll, <laughs> I'll send it to you. And when I got it, it was Strange Behaviors soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Ooh and Tangerine Dream does the soundtrack. It's very cool. It adds a lot to the ambiance of this film. And that's and it had the Tor Johnson killer on the cover of this uh, this album cover and I'm like, what is this movie? I've never heard of it before. Um, it's called Dead Kids. Or Strange Behavior, you can find it under both titles. Severin, just for a while, had a co- had a, a, a Blu-ray of it. I think it's out of print now. There is another company uh, who I think has released one, and I believe it's in a region-free. You can get it for like $23, $24. I, it's harder to find on streaming, but it is on a decent copy. It's on YouTube right now, so you can yeah. find it. I think if you're a slasher fan... This is going to be weird. It's going to be a little strange. It may take a few too many detours if you're really uh, into this is my list of what I expect in a slasher, but I will tell you it's going to be a little refreshing if you're looking for something different.
2: Yeah, and I had watched it on YouTube a couple years back, Nathan, but you can also catch it on the Arrow channel and on Flixfling if you have those, or you could rent it, of course. um. It was on the Criterion channel for a while, but I don't know if it still is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, this is it's an interesting movie, and I think it's kind of it took a while for me to get into it when I watched it. I know there's there's that weird scene with the video and the chickens and everything, (laughs) and it's just all very weird. Um, But if you want to get sold on this movie, and I just watched this earlier today, there is about a three minute trailer out there that intercuts at a point that party you're talking about. um, It just goes back and forth from like the party to like a scene of horror. And I I think it's an incredible trailer Um, and it's got the old school, you know, grindhouse trailer voice. And um, it has it's under the title of dead kids. Uh, In that instance, even though the trailer is titled Strange Behavior, but um, it's definitely something different, though, if you're looking for a slasher, and I think it'll have what slasher fans want. Uh, you might just have to hold on through some weirdness uh, before you get there. But, uh, or if you're like me, you savor the weirdness while you're getting to the slasher stuff. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> um. But no, it's a, it's a great choice, Nathan. I think it's an unconventional choice, and I love that you picked that one. Um, and I, I don't think any of the three of us really picked a conventional choice. I mean, that's why we're saying underrated, right? Uh, yeah, this was yeah. definitely offbeat, and I do think people <laughs> maybe haven't. Heard of it. I do want to ask one question to you, Trey,
0: though. Like, you're right. It is, there's a lot of weirdness up front. Do you feel, though, that by the end it does wrap? It's not one of those movies that leaves a lot of things hanging. I feel like it wraps its story up pretty well.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think you get <laughs> everything you need yeah. um, out of the ending of the story. I mean, it, and it is, I mean, this is a full on horror film. I mean, there's some pretty, yeah. um, there's a scene with someone trying to get to a phone that's pretty terrifying in this one, intense. And, um yeah the i i don't want to say anything with spoiling anything i would just say it isn't a traditional slasher but i think it fits the role of a slasher but um yeah that's about all
3: i have to say on that one And victor you you haven't seen this one right i have not seen it but nathan when you described the uh the the tor johnson mask that totally reminded (laughs) me of Drive when?
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. The
3: unnamed main character puts on the mask, the stuntman mask, to to go do some business. Um, yeah. So I wonder if that was influenced by this movie.
0: That that pops into mind later on when uh, Terry Gilliam has those masks in Brazil, those big, like, baby head masks. And oh, yeah. You get this, like, giant – like, it, it's just very striking. And that's that's this movie. You'll be getting the stuff you want, and then you, you'll be like, where the hell is this other stuff coming from? It's almost like – and I love these kinds of movies. I mentioned this before. You're watching one thing on TV, and this maybe that's why I like it because, like, I never had cable. I guess this is a big reveal. People won't be surprised. I didn't have cable. HBO or any of that stuff until, like, I was in, like, the seventh grade or something. My family didn't have. It was, like, 1992 or something. So all these people talk about watching things on cable. I watched stuff on network television where it was not uncommon for it to phase out and become another show. Maybe that's why I like hybrid stuff so much. (laughs) Strange behavior, dead kids, feel so much sometimes. Like, you're watching one movie, and then the, the frequency goes out, and another movie comes on. Yeah, it absolutely is. That. And you don't know that they're two different movies, so you just keep watching.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep, it absolutely is. But um, anything else on Strange Behavior?
0: No, except to say it also ran afoul of the video Nasty Panic, but I feel foul. like... <laughs> foul, there you go, yeah. Well, once... Yeah. I don't, I don't think people realize how essential that chicken stuff is, but... Um, <laughs> The, <laughs> but you know, I, I do want to make a comment about that. The and I think probably a lot of horror fans know and are aware of this, like that video nasty list, and it's out there. Uh, at one point, I was with with another group of people that were wanting to go through and document and like talk about the movies on the list. And at first, you're like, ugh, like I don't want to do this because that's not me you know, for me. It's not my kind of movie. But there were so many movies on that list, and so many movies that were kind of hit by that that desire to sort of like, you know, protect the children, to keep the obscenities away. And you're astonished at the movies that end up on the list, like a movie like The Funhouse, you know, uh, Toby Hooper's Funhouse. Like, I think that's a good movie. And by most standards, I feel like it's a rather tame slasher movie. And the same is true of Strange Behavior. I would never think to put it on that kind of of list like uh, it wasn't prosecuted for obscenity but it was seized and confiscated um (laughs) during the video nasty panic and that so many movies were and some of them were just for the titles you know so i think that uh it just proves and underscores that most of them never even watched the movies that were being
5: on trial
2: What was the one that almost got was it the best uh, little whorehouse in Texas or whatever the name of that um,
3: That was on the list. Dolly Parton movie. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Just
2: (laughs) just for the title. And then it was removed because they realized. But uh, no, I did. And there were plenty of podcasts. I feel like that cover the video nasties like you're talking about. But I think it's more when I did my couple episodes on that. I think it's more of a fascination with the whole craze and what was going on around the time. But uh, yeah, those were those were weird times to be living in the the UK.
3: Yeah and you know interestingly enough you know in those days if you wanted to rent a horror movie you had to do it discreetly in a newsstand shop much like <laughs> the the porn dude in um in Peeping Tom like you go in there they give you a plain brown bag and they put the movie in <laughs> And you go home and watch it.
0: Which at that point they should just give you a big old sticker that says "pervert" that you can wear on your shirt.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and everybody knows like that. You know, people are renting those movies from those places, but you know, they can suspend us belief, saying, "Oh, well, maybe he bought some candies or something." It's
0: like the people that come out of the curtain room, you know, back in the. 90s i always jokingly i was like i wanted to just make like a big stick with a like a net on it that would you know when they got when those people returned the movies like here just put it put it in the basket on the end of the stick (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah okay so i think that about wraps up our three underrated slasher choices um are there any others that we want to briefly mention or ones i know we all picked several just in case we had overlap i don't, you know, seeing all of our choices, I don't think there was any any chance of us having overlap. But um any other ones that you guys want to shout out as maybe more unconventional slashers or ones that just don't get talked about?
3: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's come up in other podcasts, but Road Games from 1981. Um yep. it's an Australian movie, but Stacy Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis are the stars. Um but uh yeah as far as slasher fans who i'm sure are listening to this um eager to find some stuff that maybe they haven't seen uh it doesn't really deliver the slasher type gore that you may be looking for but it is a really good tense thriller movie uh and um and the the reality that the characters deal in is pretty pretty gory i mean it's it's a killer that's, that's going around the Australian, uh, outback, some, some route. And, uh, there's a big question as about who the killer is and, um, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is hitchhiking. And, um, uh, uh, anyway, uh, there's, there's a really great stunt in the movie. You will know it when you see it. Um, I think it's worth it just to see that, but, um, I, yeah, I recommend it road games. Yeah.
0: It's good. And they're great in it too, mm-hmm. particularly Stacy Keach oh, yeah. is one of his. And I think he's given a lot of great performances, but he's really solid in the film. Like it, yeah. it kind of reminds me of the Dennis Weaver performance in Duel. But the film in this film, it even focuses on Keach a little bit more. He gets to do a little bit more. And, um, it's really cool, and it kind of is, you know, we're going to be doing something on, I think, our movie podcast here shortly in the future where we're going to have some segments. We're looking at films that sort of were, that have similarities to stuff like road games that, that came later on, but I think road games uh, definitely predated, and there, there are a lot of horror films as as we go on that kind of stem from it. But it's another one that's, I think, relatively, you know, it we hear more about it now, but I think I first came to know about it when they had the um, not-quite-Hollywood documentary, the Australian documentary from a few years back, and oh, they yeah. had where, where they had a lot of the Brian Trenchard Smith movies and stuff like that on there. And that was the first time I'd heard of road games. And I kind of sought it out and watched it. And I was like, this is great. It's got that that outlaw feel of a lot of those Australian films at the time. I feel like even though it's not the same exact genre, it goes very well with somewhere halfway between road warrior and razorback, you know?
3: Right. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it was a year before road warrior, maybe. Um, yeah. I uh, do, road Game,
2: it was 81 was road games.
3: Yeah. And it does, it does deal yeah. with a, uh, a huge, a huge truck. Um, Stacey, yeah.
0: driving, I like that so.
2: vehicular like carnage. They do, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I I love that they're just kind of traveling across this area where there's hardly anyone around, and they're just going kind of into the main, the you know core of Australia, and it's just a very cool setting. And I, yeah, I love the chemistry between the two leads in this one. Yeah,
5: yeah.
0: Um, have you guys seen a movie called The Final Terror from '83? It's pr- it's uh, probably a little bit more. I don't know if I would call it offbeat exactly. I I do think it's a little underrated. It's got a big cast of people uh, and it's got a lot of actors. Uh, Andrew Davis is the director and he went on to do quite a bit of uh, a bit of stuff, but including The Fugitive. That's probably the big movie that he's known for. Is directing the fugitive. Uh oh. but Joe Pantaleone's in it, Daryl Hannah's in it, they're all Mark Metcalf and Rachel Ward. They all have a kind of smaller roles, but it is very and, and um Samuel Arkoff was the guy who was kind of uh executive producing it. So he was definitely this is a hundred percent trying to go off of like the Halloween success and the Friday the thirteenth success. I think he probably even the burning. So this is like 1983. So it's made in that vein with that same thing of a group of younger people out in the middle of the wilderness uh, being hunted down. And I don't want to say too much more about it because there aren't necessarily a ton of surprises. But what I like, it's just a very well-made, creepy movie, even though it is, it, it you could definitely set it aside and say, this is in that same vein. Like the movies we picked, they're off the beaten path. They're a little weirder. They've got some flourishes that... Distinguish them. If you want the, this is what I'm looking for from a slasher, but you want it done just a little bit different, but but close enough that it's, you know, it's not quite a clone, but it's in that vein of this is the comfort food slasher and you haven't seen it, I'd recommend this one. It's quite well done. It's engaging. I was into it. I wasn't always certain where the story was going. It's fun. It's the final terror
2: from 83.
3: Cool. You know, I haven't seen that and I'm really excited to see it now.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen that either. That sounds interesting though.
0: This one you make a perfect double feature with any of the big ones. Like or like uh, you could watch the burning in this and Friday the thirteenth and this and not miss a beat, you know, uh in terms of that. So the person who's listening to this like that weird crap you guys just mentioned, I don't think I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> This'll probably be one that you'll enjoy if you want something you know, a, you know, you want something in the Friday the thirteenth vein.
2: What about one in, Nathan, I know this is one that um I think you enjoy as well, but I don't hear it talked about as much as a slasher is bloody birthday from 81. (laughs) And that's got a, you know, the uh, three babies born on the same day. I feel like it's the solar eclipse or something. And this takes place 10 years later. And um, we have some killer kids going around. But I thought that was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed that one.
0: Yeah, and I think why it happens there is it's just – it's also so much in the little a-hole vein of movies, you know, like this, like <laughs> – where there's the little little kids being jerks, murderous jerks. But it definitely works. That movie is crazy, though. I I did not yeah. see it to this past year. And a shout-out to – I think it was Brian Scott who recommended it to me because I – another very weird and I think somewhat underseen uh, slasher movie. I watched Happy Birthday to Me, which I also really yes. like. yep. But and also not a conventional. Not conventional at all. And that one gets yeah. real weird. The ending to that is like ties itself into pretzel knots. But uh, And I, I do highly recommend it. Um, and that is talk about cover art that will stick with you. Like I remember yeah. seeing that video cover box involving the shish kebab. and being like, I'm pretty sure I've never seen that before. But <laughs> Bloody birthday's weird. And it's got a little maybe of the sci-fi just a little bit. Again, my, my classic line – This could be an X Files episode. I think Bloody Birthday basically was an X Files episode more than once. And it has Mm -hmm. those kids born on the same time that are just uh, bad news, but they've got, it's got a lot of interesting deaths. So I do think that, I do think that works, but it is another one that's a little unconventional because it keeps shifting over into that like evil kid territory, which feels like it's a separate genre.
2: Yeah. Well, hey, Wikipedia calls it a slasher film, so that's good enough for me. (laughs) Uh, What else, guys? What else? Any other ones you want to throw out?
3: Yeah, I really uh, I saw a couple years ago Evil Dead Trap, which I think is on Shutter right now or Shutter, yeah. yeah. Uh, And um, it's really it's pretty hardcore. So uh, I mean, even you guys listening that like slashers this might be a little too intense. Um, but if you don't mind very, you know, horror slashers that go hard, um, this one's pretty, pretty good. Um, it, it moves very quickly. It, it's Japanese. Um, but, uh, I think it's, uh, it was made by, uh, Japanese Dario Argento fans. Cause there's a lot of murders in it that I'm like, Oh, I remember that from, uh, you know, this Argento movie and, um, anyway, uh, there are some creative kills. And uh, yeah, the basic premise is these students. No, they're not students. They're, they're like uh, journalists, like young journalists um, go to investigate a snuff movie. And uh, it's a trap. Like, you know, the 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 makers of the so-called movie have lured in these journalists so they could kill them um so uh if that sounds enticing then you'll probably (laughs) dig it it's it's got a really weird third act that's the only thing i'm gonna say you know uh, victor
2: there's a certain allure to the snuff film trope within horror. it's kind of a, a mysterious aspect that um i've always loved the idea of that the same with like these uh You know, um, things you'd hear about in the 90s with like pirate radio or pirate TV or radio broadcast and things, something that probably never happened, but you always were curious about. And um, Mm -hmm. the film Thesis plays along with that as well. Mid 90s. Oh, yeah, that's a good Slasher, but a really good thriller. um, By Alejandro Amenabar. But yeah, I'm very curious to get to Evil Dead Trap because I haven't watched it yet. It's a strong one, like Victor says, like it's, and it goes
0: wild places. <laughs> yeah. But along those lines, talking about the snuff films, a couple, and I don't know if this would fully be considered a slasher or more of a survival thriller. I'm just going to mention it. Um, but there's a movie from a few years ago, uh, Vacancy. Um, and what was that? Luke Wilson. And was it Kate Beckinsale?
2: I know Luke Wilson. I'm trying to who think. Was, who it was Luke Wilson? I can't remember.
0: Yeah. Um, but uh, that one was definitely like it, it had that element of the snuff film. And again, was it slasher exactly? I don't know that movie. It was Kate Beckinsale, by the way. Um, But a movie that I think has fallen really off the radar, maybe never was on the radar. uh, And I think it's largely due to, it was a foreign film. It didn't get a lot of play here in the States. And then, the director, even though he was picked up to work on American films, he never quite uh, – he, he got kind of scuttled right in the beginning, and you'll see why. Uh, this was called Mute Witness. It's a 1995 film. I remember seeing a trailer for this in front of – I want to say it was like City – I rented City of Lost Children and watched it. And then there was a trailer for this film, and it was so haunting and creepy that I immediately like sought it out. But it's a, um, it's a film that takes place in uh, Moscow. It, a lot of it, the films was shot partially in Moscow. There were a couple scenes by a very famous actor I'll mention in a minute that were filmed in Germany. So it's kind of a toss up uh, where it was produced. But Anthony Waller was the director. The problem is, well, after Waller directed this, which very much has a Hitchcock kind of vibe and uh, and has those slasher vibes to it, the movie he was tapped to to direct here in the states was American Werewolf in Paris, <laughs> and we know. <laughs> What happened with that? I don't think everything that happened with it was his fault, and so I think it was just so different from what he had done in Mute Witness that this movie was completely overlooked, and his career kind of just faltered and never went very far. But this movie uh, stars Marina Zudina is in it. She's this mute makeup effects artist who's working in Moscow on this low budget like slasher movie, and. The movie kind of starts out as that movie within the movie where we see the film they're making and Billy is her name. She is doing the, the makeup gore effects and she like uh, goes to get like an equipment or something that she's going to bring in and she gets locked in the studio. The people, everyone's left for the day. And so she's walking around trying to find a door that's still open that allow her to get outside. And when she comes back and makes her way back to the set, the film set, she realizes, Oh, other people are, are using it. Like they're setting up and they're filming. And she's mm-hmm. like, she's hiding because she realizes they're making a porn film. So they're taking their clothes off and they're filming. it. So she says, this is really awkward. She doesn't want to step out and, and make herself known. But then suddenly she realizes it's not a porn film. It's actually a snuff film. And she sees someone get murdered. And then she reacts in such a way that people know she's there. And she begins to be chased in this building and so this movie breaks down to a couple of different segments where billy is being pursued and it very much is a cat and mouse kind of slasher element when she now where it kind of moves maybe beyond the slasher and gets even a little bit bigger is when she manages to escape and now she's out in the city proper and still being chased by these people who want to murder her and realizing that this ring this uh, snuff ring is much bigger than she originally imagined but it still keeps very much in the horror thriller vein and and it starts doing things with our perception so this is another uh, director that sprang out of uh, um, Peeping Tom Victor I would say Mm -hmm. Brian De Palma right and Mute Witness is sort of in the if you if you're gonna follow the Hitchcock vein and the and the Powell vein there, you're also gonna come across uh that offshoot that's De Palma and Mute Witness is maybe another offshoot of that. So it's Hitchcock by way of De Palma and it has some of those vibes in it and it has Alec Guinness of all people. Obi-Wan Kenobi is in this movie in a very sinister shadowy small role. It was actually filmed a bit before his death and it's kind of haunting to see him here because he had passed by the time the movie had released and suddenly it's like Mm -hmm. wait a minute there's Alec Guinness and he's they're scaring the crap out of me. The thing is another fun aspect of this thriller. And I think this is where where the diploma part comes in because Billy is a special effects makeup artist. And at some point has to find a way to fight back. She's going to find interesting ways to turn the tables on these people and, and their, your perception of reality. So it's uh, I highly recommend it. I believe I heard that one of the boutiques had picked this up and will be releasing it. I think this is a movie that's primed, for uh, a second look i think in the next year or two you're going to hear people start to talk about this one if it gets out there again and if shutter somebody picks it up because
3: this is a very good movie cool well yeah you heard it yes. here first yeah um, <laughs> and you know uh nathan you mentioned uh vacancy uh a, a moment ago and um i just i just looked it up and uh it's directed by nimrod antal um, yes who, who did one of my favorite movies, uh, Control.
0: Yes, you said that. Yeah. A good, that's a, such a good movie.
3: Yeah, um, definitely track down Control. Um, it's not a, a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, K, uh, K and two L's. Um, but it's, uh, it's a movie about a dude who is part of the infrastructure of the Budapest subway system and all the stuff that goes on there after hours. So... It's it's a thriller. It's a crime thriller, but it's definitely worth checking out.
0: But it will, you know, and that's one of the movies. My wife was watching with me, and she literally says to me, "I can't believe you're watching this." She said to someone else, uh, and we were just been we were, we've been married maybe like a month or two, and we were talking to somebody. It was probably like a church or something. I don't remember. And she's like, "Yeah, this movie Nathan was watching. That it was so dirty. I had to get up and leave." And people were like, "What are you watching with your wife?" You know, and I'm like, "No." <laughs> Explain and Jen goes, No, no, I mean grimy. It was so grimy (laughs) that the people the characters look like they hadn't bathed in days, which is the point. And she's like, I can't I can't look at this any longer. (laughs) There's a point where the guy has an arcoleps, he's fallen asleep in his french fries and he's just got like ketchup on his face. And she was like, I'm out. I think that was ten minutes in. But you know, it's not a horror film. But there is a killer who's pushing people in front of the – and and there's a a very haunting, creepy scene towards the end of this film that is just like out of a horror slasher film really in a way. Like you never quite know what's going on, but I'm so glad you mentioned that movie. And it's a similar thing that happened to Antal as he made this very idiosyncratic foreign film and then he was hired for a bunch of basic by the numbers like he he made – didn't he do predators i think and and uh armored and a bunch of very like basic thriller movies not bad ones but just not up to the same level of what he had done
3: right right yeah yeah um yeah he and he i see that he's done a lot of music video stuff with metallica and uh and he directed some wayward pines episodes makes sense Yeah. uh, yeah that's what happens
2: And um, sticking with Eastern Europe here, I do have one I wanted to mention that's kind of um, I'd say it's more of a neo giallo, but it's kind of a slasher, too. And that would be Cold Hell, which is set in Austria, um, but has follows a Turkish immigrant who is a cab driver. Mm -hmm. And she sees something happen to someone in her life and kind of goes on a cat and mouse chase with this murderer who is kind of a serial killer in the area has been stalking, um, women and, you know, the usual shtick like that. But I think that's a very good one. And I don't hear that talked about hardly any at all, but, um, Mm -mm. I think it's
3: pretty solid. Great, great pick. Um, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Cold hell it's photographed beautifully. There's a, a scene where this, which kicks off the the really intense part of the movie where the woman cab driver is on one side of the street and the killer kills somebody on the other side of the street and she can see him. And then something happens where you're aware that she knows he sees her and, Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's on. And um, yeah, the, the one, the other element that I think is really cool about it is before all this happens it's revealed that she uh, the the cab driver protagonist is a, is into kickboxing. Like she, th- that's mm-hmm. her hobby and she's too extreme. Like, you know, yeah. she's being told yeah. to, to back off and, and not, you know, not, not treat it like uh, it's the end of the world match. And, and those are exactly the skills she needs to, to tangle with the killer. Uh, it's a great movie.
0: Yeah. It's awesome. And it's kind of funny and interesting that the last three movies we mentioned the mute witness cold hell and control those would make a really cool and, and quite honestly uh nerve fraying uh triple feature Yeah,
5: <laughs> because
0: they kind of have all similar qualities like there's that certain kind of griminess a certain kind of like dangerous edge to them and they kind of don't let up. It's sort of like they're off to the races and you get pulled into them and the movie's kind of over before you realize that it's done with you. You know, you're like, wait, you're suddenly back on the street and you're like, okay, the movie's over. <laughs> not, a, not in an unfulfilled way, but it's so intense that you you kind of walk out and you're still like keyed up.
2: Yeah. Um, and then one other one I wanted to mention And then we can move into any other that you guys had. But that is, um, I don't know if this is as traditional either, but Detention from like 2012, (laughs) 2013. And this is a wild and crazy movie, but at least the setup and the premise of it is very slasher-like. And um, I've got to revisit this one. I mainly just wanted to shout it out because I don't feel like anyone talks about this goofy movie. Anymore, but it's got uh, what's the actor's name? Nathan Josh Josh Hutcherson,
0: who's about my kids are so excited because he's going to be in the Five Nights at Freddy's movie.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: But I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff. He was uh, he was of course uh, across from Jennifer Lawrence in the Hunger Games films, and uh, and things like that. So
2: yeah, and I really like the um, his co star in that, um, Shanley Caswell, who. Um, I think she's been in other things like The Conjuring and that, but I really liked her in that movie particularly.
0: And has the great Dane
2: Cook, so, you know. Um, yeah, as, a, uh, as a teacher or a principal
0: yeah, or something? Yeah. This is a weird, we, before this began, we did mention another 80s slasher film that was 100% spoof. It was called uh, Student Bodies. And detention mm-hmm. feels, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Student Bodies, to me, a bit of a groaner because when it would try to kind of make jokes, they weren't in my opinion, that funny. I'm not sure if detention. I don't remember enough about detention, but I will say that it goes really weird places. Like if you're someone that like watched Happy Death Day and thought that strayed too far into weirdness, don't <laughs> even bother with this one because <laughs> it just it's so scatter shot uh, on purpose. It's like it begins as a slasher, but as it keeps going, it just starts to. Sp- viral out i mean victor it's not unlike the effect of watching that yule log movie that was on adult yeah. swim <laughs> Yes, um it yeah. felt in fact when i was watching that i remember thinking this is kind of like that movie detention i don't i'm with you trey it's been so long since i've seen it i don't know if it's even a good movie because i don't remember all the places it went i just remember that it went
2: <laughs> i, I yeah. remember one place that went yeah um. <laughs> Involving a bear, but that I do uh, remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, I want to shout that one out. I can't remember much about it. I've got to rewatch that one at some point. But um, what else? Any other ones you guys want to shout out before we get out of here?
3: Nathan uh, Nathan mentioned the burning. That's a good one. Um, that came out like in the early days of slashers. George Costanza's in it. It's <laughs> it's worth seeing. It's not bad. It's yeah. very Friday the Thirteenth like. Yeah, the maniac cop movies. I like those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. they're very low budget. The lesser
0: known and even more low budget Psycho Cop movies, also slashers. <laughs> um, and the second one, I, I think one of those vinegar syndrome, or one of those several, maybe he's put it out. But, um, mm-hmm. the, what, the one I was thinking of, um, of the newer we've got the, some of the newer ones. There was a movie from the 2000s, and we actually talked about it on Phantom Galaxy as the for a Thanksgiving episode. It's a movie called Christy. It's a slasher film. This woman is – she's in college. She stays on the campus for Thanksgiving break. She doesn't go home, and she ends up being kind of stalked by a group of people. And it does sort of fall into that – like it's it's got the similarities to stuff like The Strangers or almost like a Ty West kind of movie. So I think there is that element of slashers that we haven't talked about a lot. That there there were some pretty interesting films that came out of that time. And I think is a pretty interesting one. It it ends up being a little bit more character based, but it still has the tension and the kills and things like that.
5: Hmm.
2: Yep.
0: Um It's been a while since I've seen that one, but And yeah. not Cresha. That's a different kind of Thanksgiving yeah. <laughs> horror. We also can't that episode. That's that's familial familial awkwardness horror. But um there is yeah. one. Oh, go ahead.
3: No, it's good. I I do remember seeing it. I I don't remember a a whole lot of the details. It might have been at a time where like a day where I saw three horror movies in a row or something like that, and they kind of got jumbled up together. But, um, But I did like it. So, um, yeah, I would I would say track that down. It left a good impression on me, and I think it's on Tubi right now.
0: I believe so. And it was the same thing as me. I watched all the Thanksgiving movies we were supposed to watch on the same day, and Christie yes. was one of those movies. And then very similarly, I, like, I remember it being like, oh, that was pretty good, but I should probably take a second look. Um, a movie, since we're talking about the kind of, uh, precursor movies or proto, uh, very, very proto, I think is a movie that I want to talk about. And I was actually going to throw it out, uh, that it would be fun to talk about if not for this episode, uh, at some point. And that is a Val Luton movie called the leopard man. Mm-hmm. Have both of you seen this one? Yes. So I think, <laughs> I think that technically speaking, you could maybe point out that what happens in the leopard man is a little bit more of a precursor to a serial killer film. But I do think if you look at the structure of the movie and it's, this isn't the only one, there's maybe one or two other Val Luton movies uh, that, and of course Luton was the producer. This one was actually directed by Jacques Tournay, who also did my personal favorite uh movie of um, luton's which is the cat people uh mm-hmm. but he made these horror films that would sort of always keep the monster the killer whatever you want to talk about off screen because the budget wasn't there and so they would end up being these psychological stories here you've got this this town uh, kind of right at the border there in new mexico and you've got this promoter guy who's got this black leopard is this like uh he's going to use it this nightclub it's kind of like a big stunt but then the I believe the leopard gets away; it escapes, and then we start finding these people, these women who are killed. And initially, they're saying, "Hey, they're being killed by the leopard." But that starts to call into question, be called into question, because it seems that there's probably a human antagonist at the at the heart of this. And the reason I mention this is a lot of the sequences Val Lewton was great for doing. Chase scenes that almost uh, you didn't know you were in a chase scene until halfway through and you're like, "Uh oh, you know, which is kind of what happens. That sense of horror, like I'm in a place I probably shouldn't be and no mm-hmm. one else is around to help me. And now someone's behind me. And those very elements that finally make their way into stuff like Halloween and stuff. There's scenes of these women walking home at night. Once we know that there's this killer about uh, that are very, very creepy. And I don't know how you feel, but the structure of the movie that leaves the killer sort of up for question, like meaning not only do we not know who it is, we don't necessarily see a killer. And that space, which is filled later on when we get to the slashers, I think this is like prepping the room. You know, it's like when you see people setting up a room for a big event later on, it feels like the leopard man is sort of setting the stage for everything that's going to come down the pike. And I don't know if you guys feel that way, but I've always sort of watched this and seen sequences are like, wow, this is very hauntingly reminiscent of where we arrive when we get to slasher films.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned the, um, the chase scenes and that one with the uh, young, young girl who's sent out by her uh, mamacita to get, to get the, uh, whatever she forgot at the, I don't know if it's the bakery or the general store or whatever, and her coming back and, um, Pounding on that door and that's that's a pretty pretty tense scene and one of the best I think you'd find in a Val Luton produced film or an RKO movie really in general. Um Yeah, I think it's all there. You have the serial killer elements. You have all that kind of stuff right there. Um I think the, the main this is one of my favorite. I think uh, this is probably my second favorite Val Luton film, which is maybe. Um, a little weird to say because it is such a jumbled film at times, but I think you're absolutely onto something with this one, Nathan. And I know um, film scholars have talked about this one in particular being something that set up those kind of films.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, really good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, that's a, a rare one. I'm I'm a Val Luton fan, uh, but I've only seen Leopard Man once. And I think you're right, Nathan, in that it's one of those movies that really straddles the line between thriller and horror movie. And uh, it's sort of has the structure of a thriller movie, but it's more the, the horror elements are there. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think it should be included. It's, it's an unusual movie and yeah, I recommend anything that Val Luton produced, uh, especially with uh, uh, Jacques Tourneur uh, directing um, did great, great work together. Yeah. Yeah. And if you
2: want to listen to a five-part series covering
3: Val (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, go or
0: Trey. Trey did so. So that's why I didn't want to spend too much time on it, but I did want to mention it. The other thing, the other one that I think it would be a good, like if, again, I'm not saying in any way the Leopard Man is a slasher. I'm saying that you can see the pieces. If you want to go back to a film from what was that, the 40s, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Leopard Man. and go all the way back to the 40s and see the groundwork being laid you can see it there and so the other one i would think i don't know how you how you feel it was made actually because luton had had so many things going on and had so many different directors working on movies released literally the same year um the seventh victim has some of that too i think mm-hmm.
5: that's, that's um, yes. my favorite yep, the,
0: yeah. yeah that's another that's a great film and uh that one was d- directed by uh, Mark Robson, 100%. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And in in that you have probably all the other pieces, and that one gets into cult films too, like like I mean, not cult films, but movies about cults, like yes. a satanic yeah. cult. Yeah. But you've got people being murdered and, and vanishing, and so it all these pieces of what come to be the horror movies that we think of in the '80s and '70s, they're being mined here for the concepts as early as the forties in movies that I think that most of us would agree were looked very low key by the horror movie standards of the forties. Like they were not sensationalist at all, but they were setting the groundwork for stuff that would become very sensationalist.
3: Yeah. The seventh victim is definitely like proto Rosemary's baby. Like it, it it really reminded me of how the plot of Rosemary's baby goes uh, but yeah, I think um, l- the the movies that Luton produced in the 40s, I mean, it's interesting if you want to track them down, they're often looped in with the film noir group. So like yeah. on TCM, they show them sometimes. That's how I came across uh, Seventh Victim. And um, I, they're really worth, worth seeing. And um, I think as long as you don't mind, and keep in mind, this is the 1940s. The really gory or weird stuff only being hinted at. Like, it's just like, ooh, you know, this must mean this. And if you don't mind that being the payoff, you'll love these movies.
0: And the one thing I'll say, yeah, 100% about that, you're right. It's like they're going to talk about it, you won't see it. But in the being able to talk about it, not see it, he was sometimes able to hint at things even more sinister. And what was happening in because of the forties? Really talking about we had universal horror movies and things of that nature. He was getting away with more sometimes mm-hmm. because of the fact it was just suggestion, like the darkness mm-hmm. that's hinted at in both this film, The Seventh Victim, and in Leopard Man, and and the sexual like undercurrents of cat people, like that stuff was not going on in universal horror movies,
3: right. Right. I, 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 Yeah. There's a lot of things about the Val Lewton movies that I think are superior to the Universal movies, even though, obviously, Universal movies uh, became immortal. And uh, the Val Lewton movies, not so much, but they're definitely worth tracking down.
0: Yeah. And they've gained I'm more. Yeah, They've gained yeah. more traction. And I wasn't even really, I saw a few of them growing up, but I really wasn't aware until I think they, in the early, mid- early 2000s uh i think scorsese did a documentary called the man in the shadows about luton and they released a box set a DVD that still they've never replicated on blu-ray they you can get the movies on blu-ray and from various uh uh labels but i don't think they've released something as cool as that box set that had most of his movies all together and the documentary in like one really neat like dvd box set
2: no, and they don't get a lot of love and respect in that um, aspect. I mean, I yeah. most of them are double feature packs. I know I've got one with um, the leopard man and the ghost ship. And I think there's one out there with like, oh, um, El- Isle of the Dead. Anyway, they're they're packaged is like double features. Other than that, a uh, cat people release. Uh, I think Curse of Cat People and the Body Snatcher might have Scream Factory releases mm. um, and then Cat People has the Criterion release, but uh, it really is a shame there's not a cohesive package, especially since there's so few of them. I mean, it's not like there's 20, 30 of these films. Yeah, no. Um, another one, I don't
0: know, it's, it's not a great movie, but another sort of slasher with the the, the killer on the loose kind of deal in the woods is uh, Don't Go Into the Woods or Don't Go in the Woods from 81. Mm-hmm. I don't hear a lot of people talk about that one. It may be because it's, it's not necessarily a great film. <laughs>
2: Is that the flamethrower one?
0: Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> I
3: haven't <seen> it.
0: Don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know that this is the flamethrower. This is, I think, just another machete guy. Um, okay. There are too many of these movies. <laughs> just You're Before Dawn of- is a, is another one. I think I get some okay. of those uh, ac- across the, the streams sometimes
3: on those. Um, Flamethrowers have been ruined to me by uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> was like, hey, is there any way we could turn the heat down on this thing? <laughs> like flamethrower, <laughs> uh, right?
0: Right. Um, I'm trying to think of any others. There is a one from 2002. At the time I saw it, I was really kind of into it. um But I think that's because of what it was about. It was called My Little Eye, and it was specifically sort of spoofing the uh, those Big Brother shows that were popular at the time. You put a bunch of people into a house and watch what happens to them, and it was only a matter of time, and I was surprised that people didn't get to it sooner or that it didn't have more eyes on it because of this, the idea of injecting the, the slasher killer into that scenario, into that kind of scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was like 2002. It's, it's a decent movie. It has a very uh, early appearance by Bradley Cooper <laughs> in that one. So... Wow.
2: Yeah. 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 And that sounds interesting, Nathan. I'm going to have to track that one down, but I'll tell you, my wife uh, recently, within the past six months, was rewatching uh, the first season of Big Brother. And let me tell you, that's horror in and of itself.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you'll, um, you'll have to. And I, I want to mention a Don't Go in the Woods, there was another Don't Go in the Woods slasher horror musical directed by Vincent D'Onofrio that came out in 2010. That's <laughs> uh, on Tubi. Um, I love Vincent D'Onofrio, but I wouldn't recommend that one as much. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm really – I what I really want to hear from are the uh, – I want to hear from the audience, like what movies do you consider sort of underrated, offbeat slashers? I know uh, every time I, I'm, I'm on like any of the Facebook pages or Twitter uh, and, and on the, in the comment sections of Horror Movie Podcast back in the day is that there's a wealth of knowledge – of, of slasher movies that i've never even i'm not sure that anyone outside of our directors remember and we've got people who are like yeah don't forget this one so i know people have a lot of titles that that uh, i'd be anxious to hear about so
2: yeah brian scott tell me which one of your <laughs> 230 slashers you've watched is the most underrated so yeah
0: brian i will often play a game where we're like let's pick these two random turds off of you. You watch that one. I'll watch this one and we'll see if, if either one of us should go back and watch the other. Um, (laughs) And then we find some wild stuff. So.
2: Yeah. But uh, that's a great conversation. I think we had, we went some places. (laughs) Sure. I think we talked more about our um, other recommendations than we did about the three that we picked, but why don't you guys, uh, Victor, you got anything new to plug or tell the listeners
3: where they can find you? Well, I did a guest host spot on Headlong into Monsters, uh, recorded a couple of days ago, and um, we talked about the first three Hellraiser movies. And um, I'm glad they had me on because uh, I don't know if you guys know, but I my very first real job was working on Hellbound Hellraiser 2 in 1988. It was the first thing they put me on when I oh, cool. started working at New World Pictures. So yeah. Uh, so um, I'm partially responsible <laughs> for that movie. Well, if you I, hated it, no, I but, like that one. I uh, yeah, big I like Tony it. Randall
2: fan. Yeah,
0: here. I was gonna say it was Trey, <laughs> Trey's favorite director, so. um,
3: Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I like Tony. I'm a big fan of Peter Atkins, who wrote that, and he wrote the third movie, the fourth movie, and uh, a, 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 he did the first movie of Wishmaster. Like he wrote that as well. Okay. Yeah, that makes no, sense. I think you
2: probably, you probably got one for the best three Hellraiser films. Well, I like the new one, but,
5: um,
3: yeah, there's some, there's some in the, in, in the 10 or 11 that are worth seeing, but there are many that aren't. Yeah. Um, I, I'm <laughs> a fan
0: and I never remember which one it is. I'm a fan of the one that has Craig Schaefer in it. And it's like a noir story, a detective yeah. story. It's not amazing, but I do like that one too.
3: Yeah, it's good.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, that that can be a crap shoot if you had to do all of those. So I think the first three. Once he started once the Senate by start shooting CDs, that's when I was backing up a little bit. I think that Well, that was 3, or, yeah, right? 3. I, yeah, I, I said <laughs> doesn't oh, That's
3: right, yeah. CD heads. Yeah, starts... we, we talk about that.
0: <laughs> I look um, forward to the hearing about that.
3: Yeah, it's it's a good one. Um and uh yeah, uh, you know, I I don't I don't know if we mention our our plugs on every episode. So I, I'll just say, you know, if you want to want to talk with me or anything just follow me on twitter i'll follow you back and we can dm each other about movies i'm at dime store caesar and uh, you can have links to all my latest podcast appearances and my books and all that stuff on there so that's where you can find me
2: great yeah awesome victor um nathan what about you what have you been up to lately well um i was on uh
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> screaming through the ages recently with you. Uh, you for tell? 19- hey. yeah, we, we, we covered 1993, we continue to do that series with the 90s and um,
2: three and a half hours of
3: 1993. Yeah, that, that was good. I like that episode a lot.
0: But thanks. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that we, I'm pretty certain, we won't have three and a half hours for 1994. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, there were some good there were some good horror movies released in nineteen ninety four, but there weren't a lot of horror movies released in ninety four. Um and so we've continually had to sort of pull other, you know, movies that are very much adjacent. I you know, a lot of my stuff for ninety three I think was uh adjacent. But anyway, uh and you can find me of course at Phantom Galaxy and 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 it is back it will by the time this episode's out, it will be back up and running. We did a uh just like we did a horror movie summer preview here, we did a kind of uh, movies in general, and particularly sci-fi and fantasy movies, preview for summer. Bill and I just did this. Bill Van Vagel, my co-host there, and he's also over in Land of the Creeps, and he has a it's the to be uh, terror segment here on HMP. Uh, he is headed to the Canadian wilderness, the parts that are not on fire uh, for mm-hmm. the summer, and he's uh, so what he's left behind are these various, and he continues to leave behind for me uh, are. The what, what we've dubbed last year the Bill Van Vegel tapes, which is sort of like uh, you know, everything that Bill uh, he, he's out in a camper in the middle of the wilderness with his family. And the way that I know he hasn't gone nuts or disappeared is that I will always get every few days some, some uh, audio voicemail of Bill reviewing whatever book or movie or uh, thing he saw in the woods. <laughs> Sends them my way, and I kind of piece them together. And the past last summer, we released them as individual segments. So we'll have that coming out too. Uh, Trey's going to be joining me more regularly over there at uh, Phantom Galaxy, and Victor and I are getting our um, we will be getting our uh epi- our episodes together to talk about uh, narrative fiction, really for, for for books and stories and things like that. So uh, it is it is finally. Uh, rising back out of the muck. Uh, the, it just took a couple months off to get a lot of things in line, including including uh, this. And so Fam uh, Galaxy is back and we're going to be hitting it pretty hard and, and getting regular episodes out, have a lot of content. Uh, but we have that coming soon. So check us out there. We're at Phantom Galaxy on Twitter and you can find us on the Facebook page. And uh, yeah, that's that's where you can find me.
2: I love that you said he left those behind for you. Like it's some kind of trail that you're following or like this. It feels that footage. way.
0: You know, like you, the one person you never see in a found footage movie. And I, I, I was at a screening of Willow Creek and Bob get Galway who's there, and he goes, you know what would be interesting? You never see a movie about the weirdo person that puts together the found footage. Like what kind of person <laughs> do you have to be to do that job? And you too, always worried that in the middle of one of these uh files that bill has sent me it'll be like that I'm always always <laughs> fearful that one of those one of those audios will be like that
2: uh, right yeah that's disturbing <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> so on that <laughs> creepy note
2: <laughs> yeah um yes and like nathan said um i do host another podcast called screaming through the ages and we just did a 93 episode. Um, I'm in the middle of a little bit of a restructuring over there. And, I'm, and yes, hopefully on Phantom Galaxy more as well. Um, also new, I've got an Instagram account for Screaming Through the Ages now. So that's a that's a new adventure. Um, I'm a younger man, but I, I'm not into the social media as much. So I'm still trying to, to figure that stuff out. But I am over there posting, you know, new pickups. And um, as far as like physical media or what I'm watching and things like that, uh, trying to be better about that is, you know, if anyone cares. Um, So it's over there, same as Twitter handle at Screaming Ages. But other than that, uh, I think this was a really good segment. And we put together um, a good list of lesser known or lesser talked about uh, slashers. So we'll go ahead and. Either close out the episode or move on to the next segment, and next time we will have a Frankensteinian episode for you. And uh won't get into the details of what's going to be on that, but it will be kind of the piece together episode again. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening and we will catch you guys later. Cool. Have a good night. Yep. Thanks,
6: guys. Well, folks, this is the VelociPastor, as Jay of the Dead has dubbed me, and we're going to do a special segment now for horror movie podcast and uh, a little debate and discussion. And I am joined by my uh, co-host, Nathan Barterball. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So you're now
0: officially Velocipaster, and you and you had to watch the movie in order that, to, to have that answer. I
5: had to
6: watch the movie. That's a high price. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, only an hour and ten movies, uh, ten minutes, and on Tubi. <laughs> Very true. So, yeah. And the extra 20
0: minutes of bizarre, you know, um, feminine care product ads you had to watch. But <laughs> <Yeah>. otherwise.
6: <laughs> and Morgan and Morgan, where you get yeah. more for your legal advice. Yes. yes. Um, uh, and, and we are uh, joined by a special guest, uh, Dave Z. You guys know him from the Exploding Heads podcast, the Watsy Horror Party Show, Jay of the Dead's uh, new horror movies. How are you, Dave?
4: I am great. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. This is um it's like I was just saying before we hit the record button. It's so fun to be able to do stuff with new people, especially people that you know because you've listened to them cuz I've, you know, I've listened to Father and Son and and, and I've I've known you guys, you know, a, a little bit over the years, but not not like this where we can sit down and have a conversation and I'm number one I'm really excited to be here tonight but I'm also really excited for the relaunch of HMP it's it's really cool and you know best of luck with everything and I'm just happy to be part of it at all right now so thank you
6: well you are welcome anytime my friend and um yeah it's I think it's going to be a lot of fun and so what what we're talking about tonight is <clears throat> I've always admired you know you Dave Z um I've listened to you for years, and you were on Jay of the Dead's new horror movies a while back. And you made a couple statements, and, and you, you had a segment on it, which, first of all, I thought you were very eloquent. Uh, you know, you, you really had done your research. I, I thought it was really well done. And you. you made uh, a couple statements, one of which is about the movie Scream, which we both love, Right. Oh, uh, 10 out of 10. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Yes. It's one of your it's one of your 10 out of 10s, right? You have Yeah, high- I have
4: I have 54, the illustrious 54. The yes.
6: illustrious 54, yeah. And 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 I agree with you. I I love Scream. It, it, it's in my it's in my top 10. Um it's my number 10 actually, of my favorite horror movies of all time. And you made the statement though because you, and I've heard this for years that scream revitalized horror in the 1990s and you disagreed with that to a bit and and if i understand you correctly and you, you correct me if i'm wrong you said that you know it really didn't because the box office did not take off after scream to that to that level is that a fair statement
4: yeah i mean that's that's the gist of it 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 it, it reignited things for a moment uh, you know, for a year, year and a half, and there was a little bit of action going on, but it really didn't have the... I, I believe there was a bit of a revisionist history on the the mm-hmm. overall effect that that movie has had just historically since it debuted, like it single-handedly came, came along and saved horror. You know, I don't buy into that, but yeah, that, that's fair.
6: Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, and, and so I listen to that, and I understand what you're saying, but... You know, when I look back, I mean, it's like, okay, so the first summer blockbuster was Jaws, right, in 1975. Um, And then you had a number of movies that tried to follow up uh, on that. Either, Either it was Grizzly or Orca or Piranha or so forth. And they weren't nearly as successful as Jaws, but that's because they weren't Jaws. Do you think that... Those movies that followed, whether they were Valentine or Urban Legend or whatever, but they weren't Scream. So
4: well, I right yeah, it, they weren't as good as Scream. Of course not. And it's I think we know that's easy to say. Scream was a a, um, a flash in the pan is the wrong word. It was a perfect storm. It came at the perfect time, and it had all all, all the components that just worked perfectly. And then the other ones kind of came after. But they kind of like, you know, I'm specifically looking at the the horror genre as a whole. And, okay, and and, and, and yeah. that's
6: and that's fair enough. But but you know, part of my point is when I was listening to you, and again, you said it so well. It, it, it's just that I'm not sure any movies ever done that. So, for example, Star Wars in 1977. Then you get all of a sudden you get greenlit really quickly. You know, Star Trek the motion picture and the black hole and all that kind of stuff. But they weren't star wars and 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 there's a reason they weren't Star Wars,
4: correct, but I don't know if anyone ever sat back and said that in nineteen seventy seven Star Wars changed the the sci fi genre forever and reignited a dead genre, and then it was great for the next ten years or something. It was like just what they the shot in the arm that 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 yeah. science fiction movies needed. I don't know if that statement was made. As a science
0: fiction guy, I will have to say, yes, although the difference there, Dave, is there were other movies that contributed to it at the same time, right? You have 2001, a few years before Star Wars, and you have Alien after Star Wars. But what Star Wars did is it made – it fantasy and science fiction wasn't exactly – not dead, but it wasn't as commercially sort of – I don't know. Horror seemed to be less commercially viable in the theater. And, like, if you look at the – 1995, what's listed as the number one box office uh, horror movie was Species, which, you know, Species is at least two other genres there. You have science fiction (laughs) and you have sort of like the sexy thriller that was big in the 90s. So those two things are probably contributing to that. And then the grosses go down from there. Uh, I think the thing with Star Wars is it just showed people that they could, the same stories they were telling, they could now do with these uh, newer toys, you know, these special effects and things like that. The plot of Star Wars... When George Lucas is making Star Wars, he's thinking he's just making another movie in a vein of movies, not that he's making the next revitalization, where you look at the script for Scream and you look at what, what Wes Craven ultimately does with it. He was already on that bent, though, when he did Wes Craven's new nightmare, right? He was already thinking in the meta-horror mindset, but it wasn't the perfect storm, like you mentioned, where you had a very simple story with new characters, Nobody was coming to it, comparing it to the other five Nightmare on Elm Streets or anything like that. So the statement, did it revitalize horror? I think it did, but it also, like, at least for, I, did, what, 10 years? No, I don't think it was 10 years because it kind of, I think it paved the way, though, for some creativity in the genre that wasn't happening. You know, the that meta element and the element of them commenting on other horror films I think it revitalized the genre in two ways. I was actually working at a video store when Scream, the first Scream, came out. And suddenly people weren't just renting whatever the latest direct-to-video horror movie was. They were coming in looking for the house that dreaded – not the house, the town that dreaded Sundown, you know, that's actually verbally referenced. Prom night
6: and – Prom night,
0: even stuff like curtains. I mean stuff that nobody's – you know, suddenly people were going back and – on a weekly basis movies that had, I was wiping the dust off of just two weeks before were now out on like constant rotation. And I think that was largely because of scream, Uh, but in the box offices weren't as strong, like, you know, say urban legend. And I know what you did last summer. They didn't make quite as much money as scream. But if you compare those grossest to horror movies coming out just two years before, I mean, Halloween H2O does make only like 55 million compared to whatever Scream made. But it, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers made 15000 you know, $15 million. So it's it. there was definitely a boost, and it was also boosting the horror. Uh, you know, I think people were just going to see horror movies, and suddenly horror movies were becoming viable. Movies like Anaconda and The Relic, you know, those are not movies that would have – I like those movies, but I don't think they would have been making even the, the amount of money that they did make if they weren't coming right at the same time that people were seeing Scream and going to the theater – But I think what comes right around the corner is it didn't have to, it didn't have to carry the torches long because it revitalized things, but it also kind of, it also sort of put them in a box. You know, everybody was making those,
5: Mm.
0: uh, reflexive horror movies. We're going to come in, we're going to make comments. And in some ways it it made people want to make movies that were mostly about having a joke as opposed to maybe having scares. But then the supernatural thing came right on its heels. So 99 comes along and then, you know, that's when the Blair Witch guys are like, here, hold my beer, and Sixth Sense comes along. And then that's when horror sort of does explode and doesn't ever quite lose its steam again, not in the way it lost its steam. Because I'm going through a tray on screaming Through the Ages, and some of those years, if there was no direct-to-video, there would have been no horror.
6: Yeah, I mean, sure. if you go back and you look at, like, I did a thing on Letterboxd when I started Father and Son. I started going year by year trying to put together a top ten list from the year I was born, which was 1972 up to the present. And, man, you know, the early 70s and the early 90s, you've really got to stretch to put together a top ten list of of horror movies. It's, It's pretty rough. And, you know, I mean, you get 1990 was a good year, and you had yeah. misery, you had misery, and you had Jacob's Ladder, and you had Tremors, and you had Arachnophobia, and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer finally gets wide release, and all that kind of stuff. And then you get to 1991, and it's like Silence of the Lambs, People Under the Stairs, and,
5: uh,
6: you know, I mean, it's like, you're really stretching. We found a bunch, but there weren't a lot of theatrical ones. No. There was more. You had cable stuff like, you know, Cast a Deadly Spell. Remember that one from HBO? I like that. That made our list. (laughs) Oh, I love that movie. But it was it was HBO film. Nobody remembers it. Yeah. Oh, and so. But what Scream did was I don't know if either one of you, Nathan or Dave, have you ever read uh, the books Taking Shape 1 and 2, the history of the halloween franchise i have, have yeah okay.
4: i want to so bad i'm being lazy and waiting for them to turn it to into another documentary like the other franchise <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i'll sorry, be honest yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> hear I, you. I am I those, hear, are those documentaries are so good though <laughs> so yeah I I,
6: I I hear you but the books are i got them on audio and and uh they're very good yeah one of the things that happened was um, I, I call them on Father and Son, those who shall not be named, i.e., the Weinstein brothers. Um, <laughs> yeah. they bought the rights to Halloween in the 90s and they made Halloween 6, Curse of Michael Myers. It was a flop. And so they planned to do with Halloween what they did with Hellraiser, which was turn it into a direct to video franchise. Um, and so that's what they were going to do. And so after '95, when Halloween Six bombed, they were going to. It was Michael Myers was just going to be a direct-to-video movie every year uh, under Dimension. Then they, they'd be done with Children of the Corn as well. They done yes, it twice, Children yeah. of the Corn, Hellraiser, yeah. And then Scream comes out. Jamie Lee Curtis is told hey, you get name checked in this new movie that's, you know, a huge box office. So Jamie Lee Curtis and her husband, Christopher Guest, go to see Scream. And and she's like, wow, I'm you know, I'm 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 impressed. And I'm, you know, just I I think I want to do another horror movie. And and she hadn't wanted to do one. She ran away from it. And so she contacted Dimension and said she'd be willing to do another Halloween movie because they owned it. So we got Halloween H2O. Now, there's a lot to it because John, she wanted John Carpenter and Deborah Hill to be back involved. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were willing to be involved. The Weinsteins weren't wing, willing to pay them um, anything. They were just going to pay John Carpenter and Deborah Hill like scale. And so they bowed out. But Jamie Lee Curtis was in, and she recommended Steve Miner because she would worked with Steve Miner. In Forever Young with Mel Gibson, and so we get Halloween H two O. Halloween returns to the theaters because of Scream. So I would say I hear what exactly what you're saying, Dave, but I think to a degree, Scream did kind of revitalize horror. Does that make sense?
4: I okay, I'll meet you a little bit on some of the points. Let me okay, let me address this. I first and foremost. I have to agree about the video rental thing. That they were ripe for that. That was a good time because by that time, the the video rental stuff was 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 already starting to dry up uh, as far as horror is concerned. There wasn't yeah, a whole lot the, going mm-hmm. on. Right, horror in general was kind of drying up a little. But the thing is, I mean, and that's great that they're referencing all those different movies in, in Scream and all of a sudden people that didn't know about those movies see Scream they go, oh, well, if this is talking about those movies, let's see what these movies are. So I think that's a cool a cool thing. They get a little shot in the arm. So I can respect that. Of course, it's going to garner more revenue there. And of course, you're going to get stuff at the theater because you're going to have these movies, uh, Scream 2, of course, which comes out pretty quick. and. And the other ones that kind of have the look and the feel. And, of course, the meta thing, which the meta thing was great for a bit. I think, ultimately, it's debatable. Like, nowadays, when you're watching movie, movies, horror movies from 2023, and they're still trying to insert that meta <laughs> thing, you can tell that Scream is their favorite sure. movie. They came up on it, and to yeah. them, it's their Halloween. And it's like, I think that it kind of lost its luster a while back. So a lot of things are great for a while and then when they get overexposed and oversaturated you look back at it and it's like wow this was great but look what it spawned it's unfortunate that it that it's turned into this but this is what I'll say about Scream it it came out at the end of 96 the tail end of 96 yeah december yeah right if we're looking at what it did for the you know for 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 the genre it did put a spike into box office numbers for a bit but just three years and then it was kind of over it didn't like it by the time we get to even h2o comes out a year and a half later from scream and halloween the granddaddy of them all can't even make as much money as scream 2 does at the box office to me that that is the one of the bigger implications of hey wow it's already starting to die down a year and a half later. Why would that movie, if anything, not, well, not pack you know, them in?
6: You know, and I worked. I worked in Hollywood for three years. I mean, isn't that more on Hollywood than Scream and the audience? I mean, it was. It was just that you, you had diminishing returns, but you always get that in Hollywood. You always get cheap ripoffs and all that other kind of stuff and. You know, we'll give you five million dollars and you make a Valentine or an urban legend or whatever. And we'll put CW stars in it just like they had in Scream and so forth. And and, and we'll do that. Um, But, you know, my point is that you may not have had without Scream. I'm not sure you would have had a box office release pre-1996 for the Sixth Sense or the or the Blair Witch Project, because Hollywood learned its lesson in '96 that oh wait a minute we can make money off horror movies again, and we can take a couple creative chances because
0: that element of screen where it doesn't play exactly by the rules. Uh, Dave, you're exactly right that the meta thing is a two a double edged sword, and I felt that even at the time. In fact, I'd argue that. Uh, In Kevin Williamson's part of that issue. I wasn't even enjoying some of those movies that came out directly in the wake of Scream because I do think that Wes Craven handled that meta element a little bit better and a little bit more knowingly, maybe because he had already been tinkering with it a little bit in stuff like New Nightmare, uh, where it has come down to just being self-referential, look at the camera, make the joke, move on, don't understand how you're using it. I mean, I like the faculty, but the faculty has that problem. Um But, yeah. you know, honestly, one of the problems with H2, H2O 2 h that I see is not so much that it's directly in the scream mold and it doesn't do as well. It was certainly trying to ride the scream wave. I think you can see in that production of something that was already being considered before Scream showed up. Scream shows up and they try to kind of gussy it up and make it look like Scream. And yeah. when I remember seeing that movie in the theater with friends that were huge, huge Scream fans – We were like, oh, this, you know, the problem was it felt stale when it came out. I I like the movie a little bit more now than I did then, but it was back to the monolithic killer. There was no real plot per se out of Michael Myers stalks people and kills them. And the self-referential meta element wasn't there at all. So I remember critics at the time talking about H2O and sort of wondering, well, it's not smart like Scream. It's not like these things like Scream. They were still sort of seeing it, I think, I think Scream or Halloween was still kind of floundering because of those last two or three, whether you like them or not, those last two or three movies at the time, except for get, except for maybe really hardcore horror movie geeks, and I don't think that many hardcore people love the sixth movie, that still had that sort of stink about it, even with Jamie Lee Curtis coming back. I think had Carpenter come on board, it would have had more fanfare, but it felt like that movie had fanfare all the way to the moment when it released, but
5: yeah, if you're talking about revitalization.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think if you're talking about revitalization, I don't know that we would have gotten many of these movies at all. So here's here's the way I view these. A lot of these movies that came out directly after Scream in the first two or three years, I don't think they were written to cash in on Scream. I think what happened, and in, in, uh, I'm sure Matt, you know this. In Hollywood, these scripts float around for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. There's lots of really original stuff sitting out there, but a lot of original stuff just gets shelved or bought and thrown away, or you know, put somewhere where it's going to sit forever. And I think what happened is suddenly when Scream is a hit, then people are looking around and like, hey, I remember I read this thing where these kids are being picked off by death, like in Rube Goldberg scenarios. Wouldn't that make a great movie, you know? And they're going back and they're picking through stuff they have. So I think it revitalizes the genre in a couple ways. It gives them a new road, which is the, the meta element, the commenting upon the horror movies. I think Trey and I were saying that you talk about 1991, Matt, where, Uh, suddenly you see the shift from the big, uh, you know, hulking killer or, or the Freddy who's the, you know, comedian slash murderer that all these kind of over the, oversized, outsized fantastical characters are kind of getting shelved in favor of more serial killer-esque stuff, right? Like 91 is when the bomber happens in real life and then Silence of the Lambs, even, you know, I don't know. Let me not bring up Terminator slasher argument again. But yeah, let me bring up Terminator. <laughs> but in a but in a sense of just horror movie, forget the slasher word, Term the first Terminator really does feel like a, a horror movie sci-fi combined together. Now Terminator 2 doesn't, but look at the difference in killer. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is in the big uh hawking cannot be stopped, unstoppable, looks like a menace from you know five feet across the club. So if it's an it's a robot trying to uh, immerse itself in humans, it's not doing a great job. Terminator two, he, Ro, the way that Robert Patrick plays him, it's like a serial killer, right? He's a, he's a cop, mm-hmm. uh, not the cops of serial killer, but he, he's he's unassuming. He looks like he could be friendly and helpful to you, and he's you know he just looks like a regular dude up until he's jamming that spike through your your neck. And I feel like we couldn't get away from that. It was either going to be really wild, off the wall stuff. Candyman does a little bit of that, where Candyman, even though it's a ghost story, uh, you know, he comes off like a sort of realistic and in, in some scenes, there's a realistic sense of the world that he lives in as a real place. Uh I think that's what Scream did. It managed to make those killers in the Scream movie. There was a mystery involved and you had the mask and you had all that, but they weren't sort of. You know, there was a familial element to it. There were these people were killing with. they had motivations, and they were marrying the modern s- serial killer thing that people had come, we want the realism, with the more, like, stylized world of the slasher. So I think what it really did is, in the long run for horror, it bridged everything and said, look, you can have the fantastical and you can have the realistic. You just have to be creative about it. And I think that's where you see the Blair Witch and stuff coming along, you know, afterwards. But I think to Dave's point... Scream didn't have to revitalize the genre for 10 years because when you started getting more and more stuff uh, coming out of the studios and people taking chances, there were new movies to pick up the torch, and you could move to the next iteration. So in a few years, suddenly Supernatural is, supernatural movies are back. I mean, the Summer of 99 had like seven movies involving ghosts. Yeah, yeah I mean – where
4: they went, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Matt. No, 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 no. Go right ahead, Dave. That was where they went. That was the trend – and that's what it comes down to is that it's all trends like this is what i see is happening in in 1990 they they it was kind of over with with box office slashers to you know to, the, the the heyday had come and gone and i'll get to what you said earlier about any other movie because there's one movie in particular that to me had an entire huge impact on the entire decade of the 80s but i'll get to that after but the thing is, by the time we got to 1990, the slashers had run their course and the teen stuff had run their course. What we see, I believe, in 1990, 91 with movies like Cape Fear and Silence of the Lambs, etc., in that is they are now gearing it back towards adults because horror used to be for adults in the 70s. In the 80s, after Friday comes out, after Slashers come out, a lot of that is more geared at kids, because that's who gets bumped off in Slashers, kids. So all of a sudden, you have a lot of teenage horror again. I mean, even Jaws 2 came out <laughs> trying to act like it was a Slasher, right. you know, like that type of gimmick. It, and it, it kind of went that way for a while. Then the 90s come in, and they're like, okay, we're drying up over here. Let's Let's make it go back to adult. And it did go back to adult in that respect. However... A lot of people don't realize that the Slashers never really died completely, and you actually have just as many Slashers that came out before Scream as you did after. So when people say it revitalized the Slasher, um, that's where I say something. Like, I know what you did last summer came out right after, and a a pretty cast, a a CW-looking crew, and and whatever – Doing something that had a little bit of that feel to it, and that made money. Scream two came in and made money. Urban Legend made some, Halloween made some, but that was it. Nobody else really made money as far as slashers go. I think Scream three might have put up some money, but it did open things up towards the end. Like I I agree that, you know, if you're looking at big budget stuff, there there were more things coming out towards the end of the nineties. And we were giving them their time. But a lot of it wasn't very good. And then by the time we got to the early 2000s, it had already run its its course. There wasn't that much. I remember in like 2000, it being so barren that there were actually four movies that brought me back in. But it took time because Scream, like I said, it came for a hot minute and revitalized things. For me personally, I wasn't into the stuff that came out after, like the – Did last summers and the urban legends etc. But it's like I said, they they never the slashers were there in '90 and '91. We still did have them, and '92. If you want to consider Candyman Mm -hmm. a slasher, Doctor Giggles, they're still there. They're hanging around. They're just not, you know, they're not box box office smashes. I mean, Scream, right? I'll give it the credit for that. It came out and it was a box office smash. It it was, you know, again, it, it was a perfect storm, kind of the way that Blair Witch did. Funny thing is this. Same thing happened with. Looking okay, at the same thing, Blair Witch comes out in ninety nine, and you think that because they did this off a small budget, what's going to happen next? And the only other one that came out at the same time, actually before, was last the broadcast. Um, was the last broadcast. You did mm-hmm. not see an explosion, which is surprising. You did not see an explosion in. It took them a budget. while to pick up. It took footage
0: about a decade for them to pick up on that. Well,
4: <laughs> you know what it took. Yeah, It took paranormal activity. Literally a
6: decade later in 2009. But the interesting thing about that, and this is where we can kind of transition into what, what I want to say about Friday 13th versus Halloween when it comes to slashers, Dave Z is that, you know, the the difference is that having, you know, I worked in Hollywood from 88 to 91, you know, and um, I was on a number of film sets. I got to know a lot of producers and directors and so forth. And, production heads and, and and Hollywood is always slow you know to kind of get things going it it's more independent production companies that pick up on stuff and run with it um you know it was kind of a fluke that Paramount picked up Friday the 13th you know they yes. they they saw what happened with Halloween and how successful it was in 79 Sean Cunningham takes out an ad in 1979 in the Hollywood Reporter Friday 13th most frightening movie you've ever seen there's no script at that point <laughs> there's <laughs> yep. you know there's just a the title and he takes out a full-page ad just to good investors and he gets his 500 and some grand from mobsters in New Jersey and um, you know and so he goes and and he makes Friday the Thirteenth at Camp Novi Bosco, uh, which I've been to because um, I am a huge Friday the Thirteenth fan. But it, it and so you know he goes and he does it, and Paramount picks it up um, because the son of the head of production is, is a Halloween fan and says, you, "Dad, you need to buy a horror movie." So he buys Friday the Thirteenth and he puts it out. And so Friday 13th gets made, and then immediately after the opening weekend, Friday 13th Part 2 is greenlit because it's Paramount and they have the money. Yeah. Um, But if you're Avco Embassy, you know, or if you're, you know, New Line or whatever, you've got to go raise money to get a movie made. And it's going to take a while. And so, you know, so Mustafa Cod has the money to make. You know Halloween and John Carpenter does it and and boom it's after a few weeks they realize it's a, it's a success. The, after the first two weeks, John Carpenter thought it was a bomb, you know, because it wasn't a wide release. It opened in Kansas City, and in the first weekend did almost nothing. Um, but then by like the third week, it was doing money. And then Roger Ebert writes a glowing review, and the Village Voice re- writes a glowing review, and boom. Um, Halloween, by late 78, early 79, is a huge success. And, you know, $350,000, and it makes 50-some million dollars. And so Paramount, you know, decides it's going to do the same thing, and it looks around, and it finds Friday the 13th, and it picks up Friday the 13th. And I, I'm a huge fan, and I think you and I, Dave, have talked about this online. I mean, I'm especially a huge fan of Friday the 13th Part 2. I i Nice. I there think it's. Go. I think it's one of the scariest sequels ever. Uh, uh, amen. Yes, me too. And I think Amy Steele is maybe the best final girl ever. Um, i know with you, Heard and Laurie. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it's just. It, it's. An, I think it's an incredible movie. I think it's underrated. I think it's better than the original. And uh, as a person who saw it for the first time this year. <laughs> <gasps> what? For, wow. For, for
0: real. Uh, I, I concur. God. It's a it's an extremely uh, well done movie for a movie that everyone was sort of, ju- you know, from the critical perspective, they were just sort of throwing it out. Right. Like, oh, right. It's just it's following the exact same stream. But it gets it gets the horror elements just right on. It's so intense for that oh. kind of movie. I sat down and watched them all with my wife uh over the past like year and she had there we've got the box set and i had seen some of them and i had seen pieces but they slashers growing up are never really quite my thing so i've kind of come back and and seen them for the first time and i have a, a my kind of vibe to just quickly go back to what um uh, the 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 statement you ultimately said dave i'm more inclined to agree with you on the statement that's that scream did not revitalize slashers than I am to say that Scream did not revitalize horror. So I say Scream, I think in a in a in a microcosm of maybe about five years, I think it did revitalize horror as a Mm -hmm. popular mainstream genre. But I don't think it revitalized the slashers because the slashers that came after it were really of a different type. Like in some ways, yeah, there's a few in the nineties, but in some ways those slashers we had in the eighties, we never get back again. Not exactly the way that they were. Not that not that genre feeding off of itself the way that it was. Everything we get after that are either homages, like when someone wants to do Hatchet, or we get references. But the things that followed in Scream's Wake were a different animal altogether. I know what you did last summer doesn't really look like those any of those movies from the 80s, and neither does Urban Legends. They're all sort no, their own right. thing. So I would agree. I don't think it revitalized the slashers, the good old slashers that we knew. I mean, they didn't have the level, they didn't have the... The the violence – or what they really didn't have was the scares. The scares were just not there in that second sweep of movies, I don't feel.
4: Well, let me say this. Let me interject about Friday the 13th and Scream. After Friday the 13th came out, and we're talking two years almost – Year and a half, year and ten months, I would say, after Halloween comes. They're kind of dormant for a while. Friday the 13th comes out in June of 1980. We get four slashers before the end of the year, and then we get 20 in 1981. It's a, it's a, an explosion. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not just slashers. Horror itself got so big from 80 to 85 after Friday the 13th did what it did. For home video with low-budget films, there are so many. Now, if you look at Scream... 97 is one of the worst years of horror. 98 <laughs> is not good. Let me tell you, if you look at 1997 horror, this is what you get. Anaconda Cube, Devil's Advocate, Event Horizon, Night Flyer, not bad movies. But try to make a solid top 10 for 97 and then try to make one for 81 and see what the difference is between a, what Scream yeah. did and what Friday did. Look at well, 98. Faculty, I, I, last fall class, Vampires, Strangeland, Blade. They're fine. I just don't see anything that like jumps out at the page at me bec- about horror being so big. Those movies to me, they're fine, but they're not like you can't compare to like what happened in the eighties to what happened at the end of the nineties. I just well, don't see I, that.
6: Yeah, like, I, I agree with you, but there were a couple, you know, there are a couple things that have to be thrown into there. One is the drive in was much bigger at the time in the eighties. Um, and, and, and the general
0: state of, of horror, movies, yeah, that's so, true, Matt. And and the, the direct video is basically the the comparative thing, and it, it doesn't compare because it was a different experience. But the other thing I see is, like, in 1980, and because of Halloween and a few movies in Alien and a few movies before that, horror was still juiced up, even if the slasher genre was still forming. Horror itself was in a better place, whereas yes. in 96, I mean, what Wes Craven just right before this movie makes Vampire in Brooklyn and if you look at the movie the other movies that came out next to Vampire in Brooklyn in 1995 it was kind of a, just a confused hodgepodge mess of either half horror or half something else or horror movies that just felt tired and old you know stuff like the Mangler and stuff like that that was just sort of being like dumped out there uh but there were one or two good movies in there i think that the difference is you, it's like when you're trying to grow a lawn. You look at someone's lawn over here that was literally rocks and dirt, and they have a little clumps of grass here or there. And then there's a person. Well, okay, I've got a lawn, and I put something on, and it, it sprouts right up. But I had something to start with. So I think the, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily argue with you that Friday, if you're doing an actual comparison between Friday the 13th and Scream, I would be comfortable saying that I think Friday the 13th. I don't know if it's Friday the 13th solely that did it. But I think that those early yeah. slashers were far more influential in the long run than Scream was in the 90s. I just think that when Scream revitalized was an almost dead genre, and what was happening in the 80s was they were getting in on the on the on the turn, the turn from that kind of darker, serious horror in the 70s, and they were bringing some like kind of fun, uh, a little bit of more lightness, lightness of touch to it. And now they were sort of riding the stream. But I don't I think the stream had dried up in the 90s. Yeah,
6: yeah. I, I, I agree with that. It, it, but, you know, the one point because I hear this all the time and it, what we're really talking about, Dave, is, you know, there are these kind of things we see online um, kind of popular opinions. That don't necessarily flesh out all the way. And one of the ones I would push back on is, and I've heard this for years. Okay, Halloween started the slasher craze. Okay, I, I, no, you know, I, I, yeah, oh <laughs> no, I disagree with that. But, but Good.
4: I do. But too. That, I love it. It's my but, favorite. Listen, it's my favorite slasher. I love it more than even Friday Two and Friday One. So I'm not being a fanboy. So just, just so you know.
6: <laughs> yeah, it, but you hear it all the time, right? It was like I, I, I don't.
4: I think it's arbitrary to say that Halloween
6: started the slasher craze. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I don't think John Carpenter would agree with that. Um, but, because it's kind of outside of the
0: slasher in a sense. I mean, it's the perfect template for what they do, but it sort of sits on its own and it's like, the well, prototype, it's, it's, but it's almost
6: it's it's yeah, still something I mean, else how, in a way. How can you look at Black Christmas or yeah. you know I, and say or you know Bay of Blood or whatever and say no that's different?
0: That's a Halloween belongs slash. to more like those. I think we get to Friday the mm-hmm. thirteenth. For the yeah, excuse me, I tried. I said this thing like ten times and I still can't say it. When you get to Friday the thirteenth, I think that's when they sort of begin to sort of uh crystallize it into a formula, not in a bad way. But in a yes. basic structure that we can we can work with elements
6: and and explore this, explore that. Yeah, I I, I agree with that, Nathan. The, the only problem with that is most of the slashers in the early '80s that people will say, okay, well, okay, Halloween. Here's what you hear online. Halloween started it, and then Friday the 13th kicked up the body count and the gore and and, and Friday 13th is what kind of cemented it. The problem with that is when you go and you look at the history of those movies that followed Friday 13th, most of them were in pre-production before Friday the 13th.
0: Oh, yeah, no doubt. Not not that all of those movies like Friday the 13th start something and then they all copy it. But one of them had to be popular, you know. Um, sure. I don't
6: want to, you know, it's, you know, but it was some you, sperm you, get through to uh, fertilize yeah. the egg. <laughs> you and I were messaging today. I mean. The Burning, for example, 1981, Tom Savini, uh, yes. Um, it was actually the, the first draft of the screenplay was written in 1979. Yeah, and I don't see any of these movies sort
0: of plagiarizing the stories because the stories where they were, even including Halloween, the stories were really coming from literal urban legends at the time. like Right. In, uh i it, when in college i remember writing a paper on this uh not so much about the the slashers but you know the that 60s and 70s and even late 50s is a time when the urban legend just balloons and becomes a crazy thing and people are concerned about you know don't microwave your head in the microwave even though you can't do a thing like that (laughs) uh but all the lover lane killers and things like that like and the the summer camp and cropsy was a you know an upstate new york legend it was a legit legend and it spawned into the burning but it also you know it it ends up over here a little bit in friday the 13th and all these other sort of like camp slasher movies and things like that so i think what i see the movie's being influential about is more about their style so i think stylistically there's a lot of stuff and I, again a person who's who's watching it didn't watch it hundreds of times growing up rewatching that friday the 13th and realizing there is a lot of style that's an expansion i think of what carpenter's doing it's not better than what Carpenter's doing in halloween but i was impressed with the with the way that the original friday the 13th is actually made you know as a movie for a movie that's thrown away yeah. a lot in critical I, circles, I agree.
6: No, I I, I completely agree. So and I think and that's how it
0: influenced. Yeah. People looked at those movies and saw. So, I mean, the, one the one of the coolest things about Friday the Thirteenth is the thing that a lot of people forget is that the killer isn't who you think it is. You know, I mean, we
5: don't well, get horror and, fans.
6: And
4: it's 13, still a mystery. Yeah. It's, well, it's, yeah. Still harkens I, the, back to Jallo. Exactly, it still yeah. harkens back to the the Who Done It, which is Christy, another
6: the, yeah. And it, right. But, but Dave, don't you agree? I mean, it's like, it, it, it is, and like I said, I love Friday 13th. I love the entire franchise. Part 2 is my favorite, but they, I, I, I love the original, but it's kind of a cheat.
4: See, when it comes if you're looking the, at it, I, I hear people say that, and I'll meet it halfway. That it's a
6: cheat? The the ending is a cheat?
4: No, that, no because of no the right idea deal.
5: who
6: Mrs. Voorhees is, spoiler alert, until the end. Oh Oh, yeah, okay, so... It's funny that I don't see it that way because that bothers me so badly
0: when it's done in other movies. And I don't know if you take this out, Matt. I don't know if anyone needs a spoiler, but, like, Saw was a classic example. People loved that movie, and I thought, there's no way you can guess a certain thing. Like, it's just impossible. I yeah. think the difference with Friday the 13th is in some ways it's not really set up like a who done it because this legend of Jason is sort of talked about, you know – it's not quite like Scream, where you're assuming. At least I'm watching it now, and that's maybe because I know the story and I know what happened. So you guys can correct me, maybe. It didn't feel as much like it is a who done it in a sense because we find out who's doing it. But there is a feeling it's maybe this ghost or maybe this this killer uh, kid. You know, there's a possibility that we have an idea of who this person is, and then she come, comes out of the shadows, and we realize that it's her. I think that was okay because to me it didn't feel like there was an expectation that I was going to have to pick one of these kids or one of these characters to be the killer. I just thought this killer was going to turn out to possibly be supernatural or this particular person that they identified, and then it turns out to be the mom. So I I was okay with it in this context.
4: They kind of play it off like it's gonna be who' done it for for a couple of reasons. number one, they show somebody walking or they they show the the sleeve of somebody when there's the, a yeah a, you a definitely kill. see it's a person right yeah. and this yeah. the sleeve yeah. matches something similar to what Bill is wearing later on in the movie and then you have Steve Christie who by who who drives that jeep and we see the opening kill when Annie is killed and the killer is driving a jeep and then. What was the other one? There's a third. And they don't really mention Jason until Mrs. V comes around at the end. They right. do say that a boy drowned and there was fires and this and there was some murders. But I I do understand why some people don't like the fact that that Mrs. V just pops up at the end and then says and then this is it's a reveal. So it could be considered maybe a cheat in in the typical way of old school who done like uh like the Agatha Christie's where you know yeah. all your characters. But though I look at it like this that's kind of how it would play out in real life. If, yes. If yes. there's a killer in real life,
5: uh, just
6: because it. there's a killer yeah, at a I, camp doesn't
4: mean you met them before. They just yeah, show up I, at the end and they they play you. You know. Yeah.
6: I, I mean, like I said, I love the movie. Um, but I think it's a cheat only in the sense in the way we use the term "who done it." Does that make sense? Fair.
4: Because, yes. Yes, it is. That makes. Okay,
6: sense. so I don't mind it from watching the movie. I love the movie. But when people say Friday the Thirteenth is a whodunit, I'm like, you mean like in the Agatha Christie sense? I don't think so because you know we we don't we don't know who this person is, and so the reveal is like an Agatha Christie. But
0: you're, a, I agree with you, Matt. It is not a drawing room mystery where you've laid no. out the clues in front of you. Right? It's not about the no, clues. But-
4: It is a murder mystery, and they do try to give you clues, and Crazy Ralph. Some people could think of the killer the first time watching it. They do place little tiny things out there, and and they even go as far as that when you go into the Jeep, you see the dead body. But then you see Steve Christie get killed, they're like, well, he's not the killer now. (laughs) So so have,
0: That's it right there, Dave. They keep killing the people off, because when you were going back to the it's like, oh, he's right. Having just seen the movie not long ago, it's like, he's right, they did have that element. But it's never sustained long enough. We don't have enough time to build real suspicion because then that person shows
6: up dead. Well, let's, and, and, and let's be frank. As much as I love the movie, yeah. I mean, Sean Cunningham has been very open that he was just trying to keep the lights on. And Victor yeah. Miller had never seen a horror movie in his life, uh, the writer. And he, he was mainly known for writing soap operas. Um, it was just, <laughs> yes. you know, it was a happy accident that it just happened to be a good movie because, Neither the writer or the director were that invested in it. Um, but the thing that I hear all the time about Friday 13th, as much as I love it, even though I love part two more than part one, um, is that Friday 13th changed everything because, you know, it, it was the one that ramped up the body count, the violence, the gore, all that kind of stuff. But no, I, I don't, and there's think more, it changed, yeah.
4: Well, but, and there's more. Uh, but if to what they do,
6: Tom Savini, that's not true. what's not true um uh, that, that Friday they, it, Tom Savini said that when i went to i got to go before pre covid um I won you have to enter this lottery, you still have to pay like hundreds of dollars, but you enter this lottery uh to be able to go to Camp Novi bosco yes and for, I broke in there by the way. Oh, you did well, <laughs> and
4: I videotaped it. Yeah, I went. Cool. I went legally, so um, right, I was bad. I know. Um, I went
6: legally, and um, I paid my three hundred some bucks to the Boy Scouts of New Jersey, and and nice. I spent the whole day at the camp, and I watched the movie on the beach that night with Adrian King and Tom Savini, and and awesome. and, and so forth. And I had lunch with Tom Savini um, when he learned that I worked. Had worked for Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, the guys who wrote Hound Dog and and Jailhouse Rock and Stand By Me and all kinds of stuff. He was a fan and he wanted to talk to me, so we we sat down and had like a ham sandwich and a you know mini bag of Lay's potato chips. You know, it wasn't fancy, um, and we were sitting there talking, and I and, and so I we were talking about this about the whole thing with Halloween and Friday Thirteenth, and he looked at me and he said. You know, I would love to be able to take credit um, for Friday, 13th, launching the slashers and all that kind of stuff. He said, but it's not true. He said Halloween launched the slashers. He said what launched the gore was Dawn of the Dead.
4: Well, yeah, for sure. Of course it did.
6: And and, and Sean Cunningham has said in interviews, he said – we, somebody came to me and said, "Saw Dawn of the Dead." And this guy, Tom Savini, did these effects and all this other kind of stuff, and so, and we needed to bring him in. And so, you know, I. But what I hear going back to the kind of the popular things we hear online is, "Friday the Thirteenth launched the slashers." Well, uh, it, it, it did not factually, because most of the slashers, especially eighty one, eighty two, whether it was Hell Knight or Pieces or what. Whatever, Madman, you know, that kind of stuff. All that stuff was in pre-production before Friday Thirteenth.
4: Um, see, and, I don't know. I don't know. Where, where, where do you see? Uh, where did you get that information that it was all in pre-production? That's that's strange to me because yeah, you
6: can you can I, just on stuff like directors commentaries and, and and that kind of stuff on the Blu-rays. Um, so they're
4: they're just gonna try to. I understand why they would say that to say, oh well, we went up Friday the 13th because we were already writing it, and this is pre. I don't know if I'm going to buy all. Well, that no, no, no. Them. They weren't.
6: They, none of them were saying they were trying to. They were before Friday 13th. It was just like, you know, right. it they was, just had it, the
4: idea. No, they had like.
6: You know, it goes back to what Nathan was saying earlier, like Halloween comes out, it's a huge success. A lot of people like Harvey Weinstein are like, oh, we can put a little money into a horror movie and we can make some money. And they take the Cropsey legend and you get the burning and, and the burning was, was circulating in 1979.
0: And and, and, yeah. and and to be fair, I think the issue is, and this is no slag on the slashers, is it's a very simple formula. And it's a formula, as we well, yeah. all pointed out, existed beforehand. And so a lot of those movies we're talking about the ones that look the ones that look closest to Friday the 13th ironically are probably the ones that were in development about the same time and just all sort yeah. of fell out. But I think that Friday the 13th what it has the benefit of of and it's really it's not even I don't even know that it's Friday the 13th this one that is by itself the most influential because to me the most the the one original thing that this Friday the 13th movie has that would have been original that wouldn't have been like Halloween or the others is the ending, right? And that ending isn't really copied by most of the movies that come after except for a couple weirdo right. Canadian slashers that are like, let's give you something you've never seen before and doesn't make any plausible sense. I'm looking Strike. at you, uh, happy birthday to me. But, you know, there's, <laughs> which I love. I love, you don't, that love
6: you don't love the Scooby-Doo ending of happy birthday to me? I uh, love that ending. I think it's,
0: it's, 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 it's bat crap crazy, and I love it. Um, yeah. But it's not something that was being done a lot. Um, and the Dead
6: Kids movie is even weirder, but that's a different <laughs> – Yeah, that's even weirder. But, it, no, most of those movies were just – you know, it's just – it goes back, Dave, you know, it, I don't think it, – it, it, it's just – I think if you look – You know, online you look at IMDb, you look at the stuff. It's just factually like My Bloody Valentine was in pre-production before Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, it was just. Well, see that.
4: Okay, let me let me interrupt there. I don't. Okay, let me say this about Friday, and then let me address a movie like My Bloody Valentine. Okay, what Friday the Thirteenth did in the realm of slashers is they added the gore. I'm not saying they added gore to the whole genre. Because if you want to get even more particular, yeah, Dawn of the Dead. That's why they signed Savini because he was a rock star because of Dawn of the Dead. And then Maniac came out one month before Friday the 13th. So that was gore-filled too, and it's Savini, so he was the man. But what Friday did was this. They took the gore and they took creative kills. Neither had been done in Halloween really they they added that element to it. They added the who done it element whether it be a cheat or not isn't that's another story, but they add in Halloween you know the killer from jump. Okay? Sure. When, when when Friday comes around, you get the gore, you get the creative kills, you get that score. And I I'm, I'm not trying to say that Manfredini has a better score than Carpenter in Halloween 78. Yeah. I would never say that. But Have you read Harry Manfredini? Thing. No, no, but I like I love his I, I love his score. I,
6: I, I agree with you. I, I'm not. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just, oh no, he is a um, interesting individual. Let's just put it that way. Go oh, ahead. he's a
4: little eccentric, but <laughs> yes. but his score is amazing in this movie, and, and it's replicate. in the fact that they have the Jason as his own noise or, or the killer, and etc. And they take the POV and they put it to the next level. You never had POV featured in a slasher. To this magnitude until you did Friday the 13th. You had a bit of it in Halloween and you had a bit of it in Black Christmas. It was, it was, well, also Bay of
0: Blood and. Yeah, there's a good (laughs) bit of it in Black Christmas, actually. There's
5: a, a, it was the opening
4: sequence for, for Black Christmas and then I think another one later. But I think when you're actually seeing the, the the killer's POV, I think it is really showcased in Friday. And again, you have the Who Done It thing so we hadn't seen that yet now it's a, it's not a holiday but it's a special day it's a friday the 13th so when when now this is where i take a little bit of umbrage with the reason why a my bloody valentine and a prom night and all those gimmick movies came out was because of the title they said okay what titles can we use here okay it's 19 we already had friday the 13th what's gonna come next and if you look at the list it's always something a Valentine, a final exam. Yeah. Um, happy birthday. I, it's a birthday. I, 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 will, I will
6: agree with you with the title because titles are sometimes yeah. put on the movie literally a month before they go out. I mean. But, but then exactly, you could track exactly. the title back to Halloween. That's the holiday
0: yeah. element I mean, it, of it. That's it, what Friday it, it, 13th was doing.
4: Yes. It, and that's what Friday did. They ripped it off. And they, they said that. So I get yeah. that. But I don't think. Like, look at it this way Friday came out in in, in June. Of uh of 1980, so let's just say it had to be here. It had to be written at some time in '80. And I think if you looked at the script, and it was he, written in '79. Okay, I was going to say even being the Friday Camp yeah, I yeah. might have seen '79. I could be yep. wrong. So I and I, I'll even give you that because of of, of Halloween. Yes, of course people are going to try to write scripts to, to make. Another movie similar. So I'm not saying everybody's lying or anything like that. There's other movies that came out that did things even before Friday. Like I said, Mania came out a month before with the gore, and it's kind of a slasher. Then we have another, uh, um, a movie that isn't as well known called To All a Good Night, which had some real Mm. interesting slasher elements in it before Friday the 13th. And it wasn't, it just wasn't, you know, the, the greatest thing, but nobody talks about it. People talk about Halloween. And then Friday the Thirteenth, and then the the you know the 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 embarrassment of riches that we got for the next couple years of slashers.
6: Right. Yeah. I my only argument is, that, yeah, you're. I think you're exactly right about the title thing. I mean, I think Halloween, Friday Thirteenth, that set the standard for. My bloody Valentine, April Fool's Day, you know, I guess Black, I guess Black Christmas is kind of in there too. Well, yes, well, <laughs> the Black Christmas was not was not the box office hit, right? The no, whole, but it's got you know, the title. Right. I'm just, yeah, yeah, kind of yeah, being yeah. cheeky about that. But. no, yeah, I get you. But it's, but where 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 I, where I hear horror fans go, yeah, but Friday 13 13th changed the game here, and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, all those movies that people are are checking and saying friday 13th influenced i'm like but they were already in production and 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 people need to remember i mean because we got so many friday 13ths, one after another it was the one slasher that was backed by a major studio um and so you know literally the weekend after friday 13th came out paramount could green light and go go make part two and you know it's it's green lit, it's gone but if you're like I said, if you're doing New Line or Avco or, or, or whatever, it, it sometimes takes a year to 18 months just to raise the money. And that's not even just writing the script. And then you're shooting on 16-millimeter film, which takes forever to edit. And so when I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, you're saying that Friday the 13th influenced all these slashers in 80, 81, 82. But those movies had to already be screenwritten Funded, You know, I'm like, I, I I don't see how that comes together that quickly. Um, well, let me
4: it, ask you this, man. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If Friday the 13th doesn't go the whodunit style, because if you mm-hmm. look at all these other movies that came out in 80 and 81, they're all whodunits. Where prior to that, Halloween was not a whodunit. So Friday introduces the whodunit uh, part of it. Well, that's a giallo Okay, kind of, of, but still it's a mystery who the killer is. That's fair to say. We don't know the killer. We find out at the end. Okay, so there's there's that. And if Friday the 13th isn't the freaking huge success that makes a minuscule budget and blows freaking the shining out of the water uh, one week prior, it it, made so much money. If Friday the 13th is not the success it is, I just it, don't think that we see I, these other slashers I come hear out. What you're, I,
6: I hear what you're saying, David. I mean, it, not yeah. only The Shining. I mean, The Changeling, and on and on. It, 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 yes. You know, it, it out, it, you know, it outdid all those at the box office, no doubt about that. But the problem just still is that when you go and you look up and you research, or if you read, you know, um, uh, what's his name, Justin something, um, who wrote a book on slashers and so you. Got, so many of those movies were already in pre-production. And look, guys like Steve Miner have basically admitted that, you know, whether it was Friday 13th Part 2 or whatever he was doing. Yeah, he was he was taking from Giallos and he was taking from yeah. he was taking from Bay of Blood and the town that dreaded sundown and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I, I I don't get me wrong. I love Friday Thirteenth. I paid a fortune to go visit the site and spend the day. There. <laughs> right <on>. You know, <laughs> I I would I wouldn't have spent five hundred dollars. You know, um, plus plane right. fare and a rental car. So probably a thousand dollars when it's all said and done to go spend a day at Camp Bosco If I didn't love Friday Thirteenth, don't get me right. wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I I love it, but I, I, I'm just saying. I think we give it a little bit too much more credit than Sean Cunningham gives it or Tom Savini gives it. And and so I just think we're giving it too much credit. I think that there was a huge rush after Halloween to go make horror movies. And and then Dawn of the Dead becomes this huge drive in success. Tom Savini becomes well known. And so he's getting pulled in by Joseph Zito and, you know, whoever to to do all this stuff. So but I don't think the timeline. That it was Friday the 13th that changed everything doesn't fit. It, 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 It just doesn't work. So many of those movies were already either in production, already written, already going. They were just trying to get the funding together and not just the funding to film it. Then you got the filming, you got to get the funding to edit it and everything else and sometimes editing would cost as almost as much as I mean it, it's a fortune to edit 16 35 millimeter film. I mean it, it you know it would take forever. I I directed a music video when I was 18. It took me a week just to do what's called offline editing, just writing down the time codes and time stamps that I wanted. It it just takes forever. And, um, it's a long process. And so I love Friday 13th. I'm a fan of Friday 13th. I hope to return to Camp Novi Bosco, even though it cost me a fortune to take my son there. Um, I hope both of you get to go sometime, you know,
4: you, Dave, officially and not just illegally. Um, well, let me, let me defend myself. When I did do this, yeah. It was before they did the tours. This was back in 2015. Uh, okay. And nobody – they they started doing that like two years after. But we – actually, there's, there's a YouTube video of the whole thing. We went down there. We did this. We did that. We broke into – it said no trespassing, but we're such fanboys. We had to get in. <laughs> so we went as deep as we could, and the best part got cut off because I just got my new iPhone, and I thought I hit record when I didn't. But literally, cops came in there or – not yeah. I don't know about cops, but – vehicles that had something on the top that, that made away. Yeah. I don't know if it was security whatever, well, but they, they came down we had to duck down in the field and I thought I was filming it and that was the only thing I missed and then all of a sudden you see us running away and it was crazy, it was crazy but let me ask can, you one thing, let's pretend sure.
6: can, can I say one thing real quick Please can I, can, yeah. just as a background do you know one, one of the reasons that the cops started like patrolling that like crazy and, and security crazy fans of course Exact. Some guy took his little, like, three- or four-year-old boy I, – I was told this when I was on the tour by one of the Boy Scout leaders – took his three- or four-year-old boy and wanted to, quote-unquote, baptize him in Crystal Lake like Jason.
4: <laughs> he didn't want to hurt the kid, did he? I, no, I, I don't think so. I, okay, I, I, well, thank goodness, Well Jason drowned they, in Crystal Lake. I'm just yeah, making sure. Yeah, they broke it up,
6: but <laughs> – after that happened, the Boy Scout leader told me we started to have regular security patrols because we had too many crazy people coming and doing crazy things.
4: Wow. That's and it's believable, but that is that's a crazy story. Oh my yeah. gosh. But please wow. go ahead.
6: Say I'm okay. sorry, I didn't interrupt you.
4: No, no, that's a great story. That's worth an interruption. Are you kidding me? No, um let me ask you this. Let's pretend Friday the thirteenth is not made and does not come out. That's going to leave Prom Night to come out in July, which mm. I enjoy Prom Night. It, yep. It's kind of mixed. It It isn't like a typical slasher setup, I wouldn't say. It, it does have some, some tropes to it, but it's a little slow-moving. There's only one or two deaths, and, and the one at the end is what it is with the head, and it's cool. but it has, right. Let's just say there's no Friday, and all that comes out is Prom Night comes out in July. Funeral Home comes out in August. Oh, he Knows oh. You're Alone comes right. out in August, and Terror Train comes out in October. Do you think, based on those four movies and No Friday the 13th, that we are going to get the explosion that we get?
6: Um, actually, probably. I, I, I will say really? this. I don't know, but I will say I think probably, and here's why. Because Halloween was so unexpected. Not just that you got to remember, Halloween was not a wide release. It was rolled city to city, old school. Yeah. It wasn't released in, like, 2,000 theaters. It was released in, like, Kansas City, and then New York, and then Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) And it it took a while for it to gather steam. It was really 1979, early 79, before people realized what a hit Halloween was. And then you had people like Roger Ebert and the Village Voice out there championing it. And so that's when I think things got... Yeah, kicked off. Now, yeah, I, I think that you probably wouldn't have had later on, if you look at the timeline and funding and writing, would you ever have had an April Fool's Day without Friday 13th? Probably not. Maybe not.
4: Right. I think that's fair. Graduation Day, all those gimmicks, you know? Yeah, but I, I think
6: Nightmare on Elm Street
0: still happens in 84, whether or not Friday yeah. the 13th is there. Well, well I'll Alice. give
4: Nightmare props for sure. Yeah.
6: Yeah, and that's I, and that's where I've it would always, have gone, I think. You know, I, a few I, years. I, yeah, I agree, Nathan, and I think that, you know, I, I've always given Wes Craven mass respect, despite the fact that I have a few problems with Nightmare on Elm Street, mainly because of Bob Shea sticking his nose into things and Wes Craven <laughs> being too nice. Um, you don't and, like the end.
5: <laughs> well, I didn't like the.
6: I didn't like the oatmeal stairs or the tongue coming out of the phone. That tongue that is stuff. iconic. Uh, but it it made no sense, and it was all Bob Shay. It's a dream. You know, you have this, you have that. But she was awake. Um, I, 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 you know, but the fact that Wes Craven reads a story in the L.A. Times about you know it's the cool. boat, yeah. yeah, the boat people dying in their sleep. And he's looking over at his cat and his cat is, you know, stretching his claws and he puts that all together into Freddy Krueger, who, you know, was a person who bullied him in, in school and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I, I, I respect the original Nightmare in Elm Street. I'm not a Freddy guy, but I respect the original Nightmare in Elm Street because of what Wes Craven put together there. But I, I'm a huge fan of Friday the 13th. I don't think that it had the impact that most people assume it had and and most scholars and and and, and, and Justin justinkerzwe's his name i'm sorry justin Kurzweil who wrote a who's written a book under it's under several different titles but it's basically history of slashers um you know it it, it, it chronology doesn't match up it it just doesn't match up it You know, so many of those movies were in pre-production before Friday. I think it was a mix of guys like Steve Miner looking to break into the industry, loving Bay of Blood and Town that Dreaded Sundown and Giallos and that kind of stuff. And then when Halloween had its success, I think they saw their opportunity and they rushed to it. And really only Friday was the Friday was really the only major studio franchise, which is why they were able to crank him out so, you know, so quickly. Because so many of the other ones were independent where they had to raise the money. And and that's my point, is I think I think it's primarily Halloween success. Yes, you know, John Carpenter has, has admitted to being a big fan of Black Christmas, but Black Christmas was not a box office hit. It was not a huge box office hit like Halloween was and no and, and but dawn of the dead also because it was a huge drive-in success and had to go to drive-ins because in many towns it was unrated um and so you know i i think I, I think that's my point is just that look don't please don't get me wrong people who are listening to this listeners i love friday 13th friday 13th part 2 is one of my 20 favorite horror movies of all time I, I love it. It scared the crap out of me. I don't care that it stole from the town that dreaded sundown and and, and Bay of Blood. I don't care. You know, um, sackhead Jason who can do cardio scares me more than WWE Bald Jason. I, I just, I, you know, I, I, I Amy Steele's amazing. So I love I love the series. I'm not trying to detract from it. I just think it may get get a little too much credit for the slasher craze of the early 80s. Does that make sense? Yeah. And here's my
0: kind of bottom line, why I think conversations like this are beneficial, where it's not like, okay, you have to cede to my opinion or I have to cede to yours or anything like that. But I think what we're uncovering here or or demonstrating here as we're talking about this is how – Rich in a sense, the 80s were for good horror movies made in that mold because Friday the 13th didn't have to do it all by itself. And they were, they were, and I think that's what made the the decade better was they, you had a lot of creative people kind of tapping on the same vein, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But, you know, alongside the Friday the 13th, when you hear when you pivoted towards a younger model, it's funny you mentioned, uh, The Changeling and The Shining. It's like, we talked about in 96 how it flipped the other direction, right, and it went from the old guard of yeah. we're, we're going back to Silence of the Lambs and adult horror films, Cape Fear. Well, this was coming out of those classically mounted adult mm-hmm. horror films and coming into a younger iteration. But look at all the different kinds of iteration that that, that, that popped out of that. You have Friday the 13th goes one direction. the Slashers go that way. Nightmare on Elm Street takes it off a, a slightly different path, and then, you know, then you're you're getting the Stephen King things. You're getting uh, Tom Holland doing Fright Night, which is taking the classic monsters oh, yeah. and putting them into that kind of mold of of the teenagers. But we're also bringing in some Hitchcock and things like that, just like we're bringing in the Agatha Christie here. So I think that what's nice about when you look at the '90s and one of the reasons is like, well, Scream was kind of out there on its own, you know. Whereas this decade. Had the, the 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 relay race, the torch carrying was happening a little bit quicker. You know, they were because they were making the movies in a quicker time frame. I mean, how many Friday the Thirteenth? Aren't there like four Friday the 13ths before Nightmare on Elm Street even shows up in nineteen
6: eighty? Yeah, there are. You know? Yeah, I yeah think I think there are four. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's because right, the fourth one comes yeah. out in
0: eighty four, which yeah. is my favorite. The fourth one's my favorite. Um, for 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 Friday the Thirteenth, I should say. Uh.
6: And that set no longer exists, unfortunately. So I, I, uh, uh oh man. What doesn't I, exist?
4: Would you say?
6: No. The, okay, so part one was shot at Camp Novi Bosco in oh, Western, the set. Yeah, right. the yeah, the Western part. Western New Jersey. I know. The second was shot in Connecticut, which yep. is now private property, which I found out the hard way. <laughs> I tried <laughs> to visit it and, uh, <laughs> I ran into a no trespassing sign. Uh, Three and four were shot at the same – basically the same location in – outside of Lake Arrowhead, California, and some frat boys broke into the house and set a fire in the fireplace, not realizing that the fireplace was fake, and they ended up setting the whole place on fire. Very sick. yeah, no. And there's long. a video
4: of it too, of course. because yes. you know, of course they were they were the ones that did it. That's the, yeah. But it's it's really shameful. Let it let is. me let me say this about this. Um, okay, Friday the thirteenth. I am willing because I'm not that pigheaded, and I always say that if my opinion <laughs> can be changed, I don't mind because it means I learned something. So I'm not I'm not too stubborn. I'm willing to look at some of these. uh Movies that you referenced and then try to see which was being written at what time and what mm-hmm. was in pre-production. I will give The Devil It's Due to a degree, but I, I there, there's still one impasse. I still don't think that if Friday the 13th doesn't have the success that it has, mm-hmm. I've been saying for years, I don't think it gets enough credit. It's so funny that you think – uh that you say – that everybody says that Friday kicked off the. Sl- I, I I find myself fighting an uphill battle when I say that. I always hear Halloween. Some people say Texas Chainsaw. Some people say um, Black Christmas. I'm usually fighting an uphill battle. So you, so you apparently you hear a lot of people saying what I'm saying. But I do say this. I don't think it gets enough credit because what I think, the success of that low budget, making all that money. I think it made people. It made investors. And studios more likely to take chances because of all that success. I don't think we get movies like um like Basket Case, uh, Reanimator. Just you could go on and on. Just mm. random, maybe a not toxic even Avenger, even. That. Ra- random. There you go. Without the success of a Friday the Thirteenth. I don't know if studios are likely to do this, and we have to see the birth of the VHS market, which Friday 1 and 2 were big staples there, and then they made more, and they kept coming right out. I think that all of that, in direct-to-video wasn't always a bad thing at the time. I think that Friday the 13th, the success of it, kind of kicked off so many things in the 80s. Like, I agree, Alien was a big movie, Dawn of the Dead, of course, Halloween, and we do have some movies, but I think the low-budgetness... Of Friday and, and that model of how they did it and it was a basic slasher with kids took off and made so much money. I think that was like the impetus for the eighties boom. And I, yeah, I know I, I don't think you're going to agree with me, but that that's no, just no no my no. no. I,
6: I here's here's where I think maybe we can uh, reach an agreement. I don't think it's an either or
4: right. with Halloween
6: know. and Friday 13th. <laughs> yeah. I think you don't have Friday the 13th without Halloween, and maybe you you definitely – like I said, I, I agree, we don't get April Fool's Day and so forth without Friday the 13th. I, I think it's both of them. Um, yes. I just think that when people – because, look, the slasher boom was really 80 to 83. Yes,
5: yes. we had
6: – you're right, we had slashers throughout – you know, we even had them in the '90s. We had Rush Week. We had, you know, Hell High. We had you. You go on and on. Yeah, but the boom was really, you know, '80 80 to '83. My point Agreed. is that was primarily '80 80 to '83 Halloween. But I, I am not going to any way, shape, or form, you know, um, put down Friday Thirteenth. I love it. I love the franchise. I like the Halloween franchise a little more, a hair more, even though I think Friday 13th Part 2, again, as I, I have said, I I think along with Dawn of the Dead, maybe the greatest horror sequel of all time. Awesome. Um, um, and yeah. so, yeah, I, I so I'm not I'm not putting it down. I, I just when you look at the timeline, it, 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 I don't think it was there's any way it could be Friday 13th that kicked off. The slasher craze of the early '80s, but I agree with you; it certainly helped. And I'm certainly, uh, you know, can see having worked in Hollywood, where when Friday the Thirteenth was so successful, following up on Halloween, when you've got a one-two punch like that, then you've got distributors who are willing to kick in some cash and and finish yes. up a movie and get it out.
0: And yeah, I so, don't think you see that slasher subgenre uh to the degree that it exists without Friday the 13th like my perspective on it now That's would be That's my saying. Right. Yeah, Halloween is the one that it, that not fully introduces the template. Yeah, Black Christmas, but Halloween sets down sort of the the template and then what Friday the 13th does is come through and makes it look both appealing and repeatable, meaning that like yes, it kind of synthesizes things. That's yes. what I was saying earlier. It it takes these pieces and Halloween, people are looking at it and they're comparing it to Hitchcock and different people, right? You know, the right. critics are anyway. Friday the 13th, like, takes the same basic elements, but it, 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 kind of like restructures them in a way that's easy to do on a low budget. That's kind of fun. And in some ways, the fact that it feels kind of frivolous is like a boon, right? Like it's, it's a positive thing. Kids are going to the movie. Uh, because they're not expecting to, you know, they, they, what they want to see is yeah. the war. They want to see the kills. They want to see the kids trying to hook up before they get slaughtered. And it's not from a malicious point of view. That's just, you know, it's
6: kind of. That's, uh, yeah, for- I, exactly. It, it, yeah, I agree. And Victor Miller has said that many, many, many times, you know, that, you know, Sean Cunningham told him, go see Halloween. We're going to rip it off. And so he goes and he watches it and he goes, OK, you take teenagers and you put them in you know, unsupervised, uh, insecure positions, you kill them off one by one. Okay. And so, you know, he writes a screenplay, and there's a reason why Victor Miller has never really, really written another screenplay <laughs> since, um, it, it, because he's not a very good screenwriter. I mean, as much as I love Friday 13th, Kevin Bacon's whole thing about <laughs> meteorology, you know, he's trying to get his girlfriend into bed by talking about a storm coming in. I'm like, what? the <laughs> It's kind of a funny scene. I like the quirkiness of that. Like, who would go there? Yeah, yeah, Who would go there? Like, this is, this is Um, bizarre. Um,
0: but if Halloween's gourmet coffee, Friday 13th espresso, they just distilled it down to like, yeah, 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 energizing (laughs) bit.
6: Look, I've seen it 50 times. As much as I make fun of parts of it, I'm like, anytime it's like the Karate Kid or Rocky or it's one of those movies. Young Einstein. you know, yeah, yeah. no um no not that one <laughs> not, not a Yahoo serious fan but anyway Neither am I. I just uh, but if you know I'm walking out of the shower and it's on the TV back in the day when I had cable before I was a court cutter it's one of those movies I would just sit down and watch I have to watch it Friday 13th is so I love it I, I but I just think i I, I think that it, it gets just chronologically I don't think it's you know it it, it it did as much as a lot of people say, but that doesn't mean I don't love it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent a thousand dollars to go visit the set. Um, so th- that's my only point. And my bladder's about ready to bust. So, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, 30 minutes, Matt. Good job. I know, I know, <laughs> I know.
4: Blame me. It's me. It's no, always I'm me. If you want to have a long trend time show, have Dave Z is a guest. You're you're in big trouble. This is great.
6: We're we're gonna go from the exploding head to the exploding bladder here in a minute. But anyway, so next, are we gonna discuss
0: how Sean Cunningham's other directed movie in the '80s started the whole underwater
6: craze with Deep Star Six? Uh, <laughs> you're, not, you're not gonna take. You're not gonna take that. that I'm that, not that. taking that. No. I wonder
4: uh, what came first. Ooh, there were three in the short time there.
0: Right. There was like Deep Star Six. There was yep. Leviathan. Yep. Abyss. And then Roger Corman even that. snuck one in called uh, Lords of the Deep.
4: Yes. Which not was first? I seen
0: Lords of the Deep. I Deep Star Six, I believe, made it to theaters first. Oh, boy. Uh, and I think Leviathan <laughs> came after. I, you know, those movies are silly, but I like Deep Star Six. You you can have it, Nathan.
5: Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a '50s monster movie through and through, just made in 1989.
6: All right, well, I'm going to have to cut this off, but Dave, <laughs> Dave Z, uh, b- before we cut this segment um, for HNP, tell people where they can find you, buddy.
4: Oh yeah, thanks. Um, and thanks, thanks again for the invite. This is a lot of fun. I hope we can do oh, it, it again. I can, absolutely. You know. Something maybe maybe um, something we all agree on. Although this didn't really get too heated, but it would be nice to all be on the same page about something and just have laughs, laughs but sure. this is great anyway. But uh yeah, you can find me uh Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, the um you can find them anywhere podcast are heard, Apple, Spotify, etc., YouTube. Um all of our older episodes uh we're all they're all one year behind right now but they're all there up into episode i don't know 150 something And all the new episodes you put out three new episodes per month and that's on our patreon patreon.com slash exploding heads and then they're new for a year and then after a year they're available for the public and um of course jay of the dead's new horror movies with me and all those fine folks that that you yes. all know and love uh, i'm over there on that show and in same thing you can find them everywhere and uh Eh, the Watsy Party Horror Show still kicking around, but it's been a while since we've put anything out. But we do have, like, I don't know, 19 or 20 shows. Well, and they're good shows, me, I guess.
6: There are good shows, but tell Mr. Watson to lay off the bourbon so you can get more recording done. Um, I'm trying,
4: brother. <laughs> it's a lost cause, I think. <laughs>
6: oh, man. All righty. Well, Dave, thanks so much. and uh, Appreciate it. Nathan, talk to you soon. We're, I guess we're recording Wednesday? Yeah, we sure are. Yep. Okay. You guys have a great night. It's fun talking to you, You Dave. Take care, man. Yeah.
4: Great time. Thanks, guys. Peace. It it was a blast. Hope we can do it again.
0: Okay. And now for our next segment on Horror Movie Podcast. Uh, This has been a slasher-centric episode for the most part, but we did want to get out a Screaming Online segment and cover a movie that's pretty new and I we felt that if we waited any longer on it uh, that 2 weeks from now we would sort of be behind the curve on it so we did want to talk about it and it's funny because if you listen to our previous episode where we covered our big summer releases uh Victor kind of dropped the bomb saying hey this movie's coming out and I had no idea they were even making it. <laughs> so uh it is on Netflix now it's streaming. It's a sequel to I think what was for a lot of people a pretty big movie a few years ago and that is Bird Box Barcelona. Uh I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Victor and uh he'll he'll lead us in and we will we'll uh we'll discuss this and rate it as usual on this show. We will not have any uh big spoilers and in fact we're going to limit this in such a way that I don't think you're going to have any really big spoilers for the previous bird box, because this is the same concept in a different setting. So Victor, whenever you're ready, take it away.
3: Yes. Thank you, sir. Well, uh, bird box, Barcelona premiered in 2023 on Netflix and, uh, as Nathan just informed us, it's a sequel to the movie Bird Box from 2018. Uh, Bird Box Barcelona is, has a different person in the director's seat or people. Uh, it's David or David and Alejandro Pastor uh, who were both born in Barcelona. So I figure if anybody knows how to do this right, it would be them. But Uh, Bird Box, just to encapsulate the franchise as it's seen on Netflix, is a uh, post-apocalyptic movie where beings come down to Earth, and the basic premise is these creatures, when they appear, are so horrific to look at, so mind-bending, that people instantly commit suicide when they see them. And, uh, it's a pretty frightening premise. Uh, and, uh, it was created by (laughs) the source material was written by Josh Mallerman, who is a writer. I highly recommend. Uh, he's done a lot more stuff than bird box and, uh, he's, he's very rewarding to read young, young horror author. So, um, yeah, the, uh, The Bird Box Barcelona uh, kind of takes up uh, or picks up at the same time, simultaneous uh, time or slightly before the original Bird Box starts. But since this epidemic of alien creatures appearing is worldwide, uh, it exists independent of the first movie. It's just a story about different characters and a slightly different version of what the aliens can do. Um, now, I really love this idea. It's it's sort of um, the mind blasting elements uh, are very Lovecraftian that, you know, the human mind cannot comprehend confronting these creatures directly. So s- human survivors have to do really creative things like blind themselves, like, like blind themselves or blindfold themselves and use GPS to move around town to get supplies. So they can live. So you're you're kind of getting if you haven't seen either of these movies, you're kind of getting a sense of what the drama is in in these movies. But um, the second the second movie, Bird Box Barcelona, has uh, Mario Casas is the main character. And um, he's great. Uh, He uh some of you may have seen uh Alex de la Iglesia's movie Witching and Bitching. He's in that. yes. <laughs> F- <laughs> yeah. Um and he's also in a Netflix crime mini-series called Um El Inocente, you know, the innocent. Uh, and I highly recommend that. Not horror, but it's it's a great thriller. It's about six or seven episodes long. And um yeah, uh I so I thought uh, Bird Box Barcelona let me down in some ways, but it was exciting in other ways. And, um, I thought the toughest move that they make is having a character that is totally unreliable, you you know, as the, as the point of view character. And, um, I, uh, I think that was a choice that left me sort of in outer space for the first act and a half, but then, uh, after he commits some rather disturbing acts, uh, he starts to turn things around and it becomes a redemption story. Uh, And that's when I think it really gets moving. Now, uh, I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought that the second act uh, drag on a drug on a little too long, but the first and third act are pretty solid. And of course it's sitting on the shoulders of giants like it's established it's it's all the the hard work was already established in bird box so they really didn't have to do too much heavy lifting but there's one wrinkle that they add that the creatures can do a new thing uh in the movie and we probably shouldn't <laughs> tell, tell everybody what it is because uh that's sort of a you know a twist so uh well I thought that it was Definitely worth watching. I think that the, the first movie is a little more worth watching. But what did you guys think?
0: There's a couple elements. One, we we didn't really uh, rehash this, but the original Bird Box starred Sandra Bullock. And I think that one of the things that probably was really um, stand out about that movie was, it was her performance. Because it was a little bit different than your typical Sandra Bullock performance. And she's got a decent amount of range and she's done different things. But to be in this kind of darker, more dour sci-fi post-apocalyptic, you know, as you point out, uh, Victor, at a certain point, as we see where this movie is going and how encompassing the interaction with these creatures is and how sort of desolate the results are, you know, that if you see them, you're going to kill yourself. We could see it heading to some certain, you know, there's a couple inflection points where it's like, this is what's going to have to happen at some point. And that, that made the movie very dark and it really had to be carried, I think, by her performance and in her performance and her interaction with his younger children in that film. I think one of the the, the thing that was strong about it was the the viewpoint through that character's uh, perspective And the thing that was sort of weak about it was it came out the same year as A Quiet Place. And while they are not identical films by any means, they do have some very obvious sort of parallels, right? Yes. And in my personal opinion, I was more, while the concept of Bird Box was more intriguing to me, the execution, I think the problem is with a story like that, you don't want to see the creatures because it's not really about the creatures, but the mystery and the sort of, exotic appeal is that you want to see the creatures right you want to know what's so horrible right that is going to drive you to this what is their real goal if they came from space where did you know if that's truly where they're from why are they here what's going on and again i don't think the movie needed that but it also didn't feel like it could could expand much further so Hmm when this quiet place two comes out, it's all about following up on the characters and following up on the world building. And I think that's why that sequel felt very organic. So while I liked the first bird box, when it was over, it felt a little limited to me. And I would not have immediately assumed that this was a story that would have been ripe for a universe or a franchise. Um, I think the jury is still out, whether I feel that way now having seen bird box Barcelona, but I did like the movie. I did like the new one. I liked uh, the way that it did expand the world a little bit. As you point out, there are a couple of new things. And so here's where I am. Pre-COVID, that story very much felt like, you know, I was appreciating it for the the fantasy survival elements. Uh, Post-COVID, this new movie feels a little bit different, right? They're like... We all had to change our habits. We all found ourselves. There's a scene, and I don't think this is a, much of a spoiler. There's a scene in a new film where you've got a group of survivors, and we're seeing what their daily life is like. And they have that big cord of wire, right? And they're just spooling it out uh, so they can keep, you know, like mm-hmm. leaving the breadcrumbs sort of. And they can't go anywhere where that wire cord doesn't go. And they try and and, and everyone behind them is holding on to that wire cord cord is essentially their tether because. This is how they travel now. This is how they move. And w- all of us, although now it's we're getting to a point where we may not remember it as much, we developed very specific habits and very abnormal habits to do things so that we avoided, you know, infection points and we avoided certain circumstances and things that were easy and we never thought much about were now difficult. The other thing that happened during that time, and it wasn't just COVID, uh, is that we we live in a world now more than ever where two, three, four people can look at the same thing and see something completely different and have entirely different ideologies built out of it, and those ideologies sort of crashing against each other, and then people taking action, extreme action in some cases, off of those ideologies, and that's kind of what I thought was compelling about this movie. You mentioned that the things seemed to do something new that they didn't do before, but and again, maybe this is mild spoilers. I had, you've, you've alluded to it with an unreliable narrator. I had to wonder if they were doing that thing. You know what I mean? That uh, there's a point in this film where the perspective of how you view these invaders, if that's what they are, is going to color, not just, you know, how you live your life, but it's going to affect the people around you (laughs) because if you're a true believer, this, might not be great if you're traveling with a bunch of people who are who, who need to depend upon you.
3: Right. Yeah.
0: So I think it's strong. I think the acting is good. I totally agree about the middle. I think the film wants to do something similar to the second Quiet Place movie where we backtrack, but I didn't find the backtracking compelling or particularly necessary. It pays off a little bit later, but it felt like there was a lot of padding. This really could have been maybe – Uh, we're about to talk about a TV series. This probably could have been about a 40 minute episode of that TV series.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did you think about it, Trey?
2: Yeah. And unfortunately I didn't get to, I didn't get too far into this one, maybe about 20 minutes or so, but I'll tell you, I was pulled in at least from the beginning, the opening um, after, and quick question. Did you guys, when you turn on Netflix, a lot of times foreign movies, it defaults to the English language dub. It did for me. Yeah.
3: It, it doesn't for me I don't know how I set it that way But you might have to go into settings While you're on a computer Rather than on a phone And yeah. permanently set it to that
2: That know. that makes sense But I will tell you it was, a, it was awful <laughs> I had to <laughs> run My it back like, Turn this off <laughs> But I did like that opening scene and everything And I am definitely looking forward to getting back into this um, Again I was I was so so on Bird Box I thought it was a decent movie the original But um, no, unfortunately, I let you guys down and I wasn't able to <laughs> finish this one in
3: time. No, no, it's fine. Um, no, I, yeah, I mean, really, we are just covering the premise and and the basic action. So I think your opinion is important here, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah, in all honesty, the um, okay, so the the basic idea of extra dimensional creatures um, is not new. Uh, there's, in fact, the, the, the guy who wrote the Mothman prophecies in 1975, that the movie, the Richard Gere movie is based on mm-hmm. is big on that theory. He's like, that's what UFOs are. They're extra dimensional beings and they come, they phase in and out with our reality. And that's why only some people see them. And, uh, he's very convincing in his argument, uh, of that. And he also maintains that the Mothman might be one of these creatures and in fact, in Bird Box, they do behave somewhat similarly to uh, the vi- the villain, I guess, Indrid Cold in the Mothman Prophecies. Um, but uh, I thought that Josh uh, Mallerman taking that to a post apocalyptic invasion level was absolutely brilliant. Like, uh, there the, the the movies or the books, great, uh, and he did write a sequel, which is strangely not bird box Barcelona it's called Mallory and it's just a continuing story of the Sandra Bullock character after she meets some key people at the end of bird box uh yeah
0: that may be where this problem is I like we said I like the movie but do you get the feeling Victor and I think I had some of the same issues when they did 28 weeks later after 28 days later yeah um where there's a kick-the-can this kick, kick the can mentality with some of these series where it doesn't necessarily make the sense to make a franchise. And so what you have is a small chunk of story. It's like we can't give away too much. We take the small kernel, and then we build it out in a sort of rather general, uh, basic way. And it, it, it's just not – when you want to go back to a story like this and look at the corners, you either want to follow that interesting character – or you want to see this world expand in some way. And they they initially start to do that. But to me, it's just not quite enough to justify why was Bird Box Barcelona so appealing as a story that they wanted to tell, that they were going to put all this money and effort towards making it. Like I guess at the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, you, you did it decently well, but it just is not a compelling follow-up to what previously came before it feels like yep. maybe you want to make the your test in the waters to see if there's still interest in this story and hey maybe we'll get the money together to hire sandra bullock down the road but let's throw bird box excuse me bird box barcelona right in the middle you know
3: yeah that's a that's an interesting idea but i i do uh i i understand uh, what you're getting at here i think that's that's absolutely true and honestly, I think that while you know, Quiet Place Part Two and Bird Box Barcelona are entertaining, if you're, if you're, especially if you're really in love with the idea of the first movie, I don't think either movie really adds anything to the horror genre that wasn't there before. Uh, Twenty eight weeks later, I think is an exception because the the technical camera work in that, especially the the opening scene, is so awesome that i think it's worth seeing that movie just for that scene like even though it doesn't really yeah. change what happened in 28 days later <laughs> well
0: and i actually think 28 weeks later is a pretty good movie it's a better movie than these but i think that that idea stands that you it doesn't really impact necessarily what was happening in 28 days later you know not that much and it's sort of like it's not like for example Ramiro's dead trilogy which is like moving this universe forward in the way we understand it. Like every single time there's a new movie.
3: Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. Whether you
0: like where that goes or not, you can't say that like he kind of rests on his laurels. He kind of goes for it every, every time he's got a new installment.
3: Exactly. And you know, I feel like the, the one, the, the big mistake that the bird box Barcelona producers made was they didn't, they didn't add anything really striking, uh, in Barcelona in yes. that movie. Like there was none of the architecture of Antonio Gaudí in there. That's what I was really expecting to see when I started it. And uh, man, there's... And
0: anyone, Even the cultural feel, It's yeah. these characters are so behaving what we expect, kind of standard. There, There is that element. I will say that there's a sort of somewhat uh, religious perspective that's brought into the film that I thought that that's where we would start to lean into, tie it back to the history, tie it back to the culture, even the, even the architecture. And it didn't happen.
3: Yeah. uh, They, they do touch on it a little bit, but again, it's from the unreliable narrator's point of view, but yeah, Spain is hugely, I mean, my, two of my parents, uh, two of my parents and uh, two of my grandparents are, (laughs) (laughs) are Spanish and um, it's a very Catholic. Yeah nation and it has been since the Reconquista. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, they, there are some really cool passages in the Bible about the appearance of angels and how they're described rather monstrously. <laughs> and that line, you know, be not afraid, right. you know, yeah. I'm a messenger of God, you know, that, that whole thing. They really do capitalize on that in, in uh, Bird Box Barcelona. And of course, the characters being all Catholic as it's assumed because they're Spanish, at least the Spanish characters, there's a couple of foreigners in there too. Um, but the Spanish characters interpret them as divine or or it, or messengers or perhaps uh, warriors sent by God to do something on earth. Uh, and that does color their actions. But yeah, it's, it's really just, it's just coloring. But man, I really wish they had shown the architecture a little bit more.
0: Yeah. And if uh, they leaned into those ideas, That we just mentioned if they had really rode that line um i think of another movie i think it was um the the um alex preuss movie knowing with um with nicholas cage where where it plays with that same thing of like what are we looking at are we looking at this thing are we looking at that thing but this threatened to go somewhere interesting that dealt with you know what what your truth is kind of can potentially color your character but then you always have that opportunity to metaphorically open your eyes i liked that aspect of the second half of the film
3: yeah yeah that was nice and uh, by the way yeah anybody listening if you're if you're into the like the architecture of the sagrada familia or any of the you know the big uh, gaudi works in Barcelona. Um there is a documentary that is available called Antonio Gaudi and it was directed by oh it was directed by Hiroshi Teshigahara, Teshigahara, uh, uh, the guy that did uh, Woman in the Dunes.
0: Wow, okay, I need to see that. Have you seen it?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I have it on uh, DVD or Blu-ray. I forget uh but it's it's in storage right now, but uh it's it's definitely <laughs> worth seeing. Very
0: cool. Um Victor, what's your rating on Bird Box Barcelona?
3: Yeah, I'd say it's a seven.
0: Yeah, that's exactly where I come down as well. And I was probably more like a seven point five um, on the original Bird Box. Same, yeah. So you can find that streaming on Netflix right now. In fact, both movies are on Netflix. So if you haven't seen either of them, you could check them out. And I do think you know it is worthwhile to see both of them. Uh, they aren't. I, I don't particularly see. A, I'm not excited by the notion of an ongoing franchise based off of this particular world, given what we have so far, but I would watch another movie if they made
3: it. Yeah, yeah, I would too.
0: Uh, cool. So that's our, our Screaming Online segment. Uh, stay tuned. We've got more coming, and this, uh, this, will, this will conclude. And next time, we should sub- Yeah, we're going to have some interesting stuff for you. Uh, in Screaming Online, including a review of a horror sci-fi series uh, next time. Okay, and now to finish up tonight's episode, I'm going to bring you a horror on the big screen review of a movie that is currently playing in theaters. And that movie is 2023's Cobweb Horror Film, that had a little bit of advertising. Uh, I saw most of this online. We discussed it briefly when we talked about our summer movie preview an episode back. But uh, really, it didn't have a really big push. And I know that personally, I had to kind of seek it out. It wasn't playing at the theater directly closest to me. It took me going about 30 minutes to find a theater that was actually playing the film. And even then, it was on one screen with about two showings. So this is a movie that seemingly, if it's going to find its audience, I suspect that the audience was going to be found online when it hits streaming and when it hits a DVD and Blu-ray. But I did want to do a review of it because I think the HMP audience would be interested in it. And it's coming from the director on this one, is Samuel Bodine. Again, this is Cobweb, and Bodine, I believe this is his first feature film, but he's worked on a number of other projects, including uh, two television miniseries, one called Tank and one on Netflix called Marianne from 2019 that, that, that sent a, a mild ripple through the streaming verse when it, when it hit. Uh, and I remember watching the show and enjoying it, Uh, and a lot of the creepy motifs and a lot of the supernatural imagery that appeared in Marianne is also present in Cobweb. I'm going to give you a very basic overview of the plot in this movie, because this is definitely a film that is building towards certain revelations, and as such, it's hard to talk about most of the plot, because you're constantly involved in a game of what's happening, what's going on, and a game of perception so to discuss too much about that plot is going to probably dampen the experience and i walked into the film knowing only the the most basic of of elements regarding what it was about and i think that's about the best way to go uh it, this does start out with a young boy named peter he's played by woody norman who i last saw playing opposite joaquin phoenix in come on come on a, a few years back. He was really good there. He's really good here. Peter has a lot of issues that are common to young kids in horror films who find themselves alone and faced with a dark or supernatural circumstance. One of Peter's big issues is his parents, played by Lizzie Kaplan as his mom, Carol, and Anthony Starr as his dad, Mark. They are an interesting mix of very uh, overprotective disciplinarians and also they are emotionally neglectful in other ways so they make a lot of rules for him including there's a point when something happens out in the town and they refuse to let him go trick-or-treating on Halloween and so it creates a world where Peter's on his own but he's also micromanaged and bullied in some senses at home and he's bullied at school in a much more violent capacity by kids there that are constantly picking on him. In case one of the kids, Brian, is played by Luke Busey who's actually Gary Busey's son and in the film, Brian's mother is also played by Gary Busey's wife. So an interesting Busey connection Uh, and here's another Busey coming up in the mold of playing the villain uh, in following in his brother Jake's footsteps and following in his dad's footsteps as well so uh, he's fine he's not a major part of the film the only port in a storm that Peter has at school is a teacher named Miss Divine who's played by Cleopatra Coleman she uh, wants to help him she sees the issues he's having at school uh, and she goes to his parents in hopes that they will collaborate uh, in 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 helping Peter but all of these things are causing... Uh, Peter to be disconnected from what's happening at school and fearful at home. Not that he's fearful of his parents per se, but his parents are not paying attention to him or very they're not very compassionate to him when he begins to explain that he's hearing sounds coming out of the walls of his bedroom. And these start as strange, scratching, snuffling sounds, the sounds that you would associate with the monster under the bed or a creepy presence in the other room. But eventually, the sounds kind of coalesce into a voice. And at first, this puts Peter on edge and makes him worried and scared. But as the voice begins to talk to him, it becomes a confidant. It becomes even a guardian. Someone to help him through the things that are going on, both at home and at school. And that element of the film is the sort of core of the story that's the river that's going to take you from the beginning to the end and so i don't want to get into too many more details this is pretty much through peter's perspective for the most part and we have the characters that are surrounding peter and then we sort of are as up to us aside a character like mr vine clearly seems to be in peter's corner a character like brian and his older siblings are not they they are clearly antagonists and Those lines are drawn. Where it gets a little bit murky is what's going on with Carol and Mark, who again are played by Lizzie Kaplan and Anthony Starr. And their performances are some of the most fun in the film because we're never quite sure where they're going to land. It's clear up front that they are not ideal parents, particularly for a child like Peter, who's a little sensitive and a little withdrawn. At the same time, and In between a little bit of very colorful overacting on the part of Kaplan and Star, we see that maybe the way that Peter sees them isn't entirely correct either. And so Boonin is playing with perspectives in a similar way they did with Marianne in terms of what's happening here, what's happening with the voice in the wall that is presenting to Peter the way uh, it believes his world looks. And... All of this sort of comes together ultimately in a climactic final third that, to be fair, I really didn't see coming. I probably should have, but didn't. And that part of the story did surprise me. I think that it's set up relatively well. We have creepy moments. There are definitely some spooky ambiance. Atmosphere building is wonderful in this film. It was wonderful in Marianne. Uh, If we compare this to another movie I saw earlier this summer, The Boogeyman, I appreciated the... The atmosphere building in that film, I think it's stronger here. And a lot of that is due to the way that this has the kids' perspective but is in no way a movie for kids, I should say that. Mail was PG-13. I could see he's a gateway horror. Cobweb is not a, a, a children's film. It happens to be about a child who's experiencing some creepy real-world things and some creepy otherworldly things. And the two of those things coalesce in the final chapter in a way that becomes a, a sense a coming of age story for this kid, and because of that, Kaplan and Starr add a lot to the ambiance. They are playing their roles just a little bit south of the way you might see a villainous parent in a fairy tale, uh, because we aren't we aren't entirely certain, and so they walk the line in interesting ways. There are some fun scenes. Ultimately, I think that one of the things. That, that happens with Cobb Webb. I was enjoying it. When I got to the last third, it was interesting to me. I thought that it was a creative way to solve the primary struggle that's set up in the film. However, at the same time, it sort of like flattens the movie out. Uh, sometimes when you get a movie that's building a mystery, you're so interested in the mystery of it, so interested in the nuances and the behaviors of these characters, that when we get to the last part of the film... And we get to what would be much more considered the traditional horror segment has a lot of the same problems i have with a lot of modern horror there's uh there there's a place where practical effects could be used and instead we go cgi uh there is less definition on what's happening in that last part any sense of character building that was happening earlier is sort of discarded in favor of the creepy horror section uh, whereas I thought a lot of the building dread of the picture was the most interesting part, uh, it gets to a point where it has to let itself out of the gate. I think some people will enjoy where the story goes, but I think that uh, here, uh, Chris Thomas Devlin is the writer on the film. I think that he doesn't set the table as well as he could if we're headed for that conclusion. There is a lot of, is this happening? Is it not? Uh, will they, won't they? You know, and that is held in check, right up to the very end. And so it, it does put a bit of a wild goose chase feel to the earlier chapters of the movie. And I think it undercuts Kaplan and Star to some degree. But that being said, I think that this is a solid horror film. It's a fun one. I like Boogeyman. There are lots of things I like about it. I'm not sure it gets completely over the line. And I'm not sure that uh, because it's only playing in some areas, I, this is a film that, again, we'll put in the matinee the matinee area uh, and to seek it out to go kind of out of your way to see it i'm not quite sure if it's uh is it worth that level of effort if you're a hardcore horror fan and you enjoy supernatural horror movies you're going to want to see this one and you're going to want to see it before you hear a lot of people talk about it because it does have a couple of fun little surprises in it that uh you there's a couple of movies i think recently have done it better and a lot of that comes down to the energy with which they do it i think that this still feels very uh, there's a very traditional wrap-up, and I think that, based on where the movie was originally going, it could have been a bolder, it could have been more imaginative, and it could have really gone for the gut punch, and it doesn't. This is an R-rated film, though. There's violence, there's gore, there's there are dark plot elements happening in the film, and. I do recommend it. I'm gonna give this one a 6.5. It's kind of right on the edge of being a seven, though. It is a solid movie. I do ultimately enjoy this one a little bit better than the Boogeyman. And I do think that when this one hits streaming, it's absolutely worth checking out. This will be a perfect pickup for Shudder or somebody to kind of to, to grab and release around the spooky season in October. That would be great, I think. And I think a lot of people uh at some level are gonna connect with it there are many things i would do differently with it and i think had they just tightened and and bolstered that last act you're left with a lot of fun work that doesn't quite coalesce but i do i do find it an entertaining movie i think that i think on the on the whole people are going to enjoy it and it's cobweb directed by samuel godin check it out if you it is playing in a theater near you i think it's absolutely worth uh you know uh, heading out for a matinee if you can uh, But you're probably going to have to look a little bit for it. So Uh, next time we'll be back with Horror on the Big Screen with a couple of reviews. We'll have a review of Talk to Me, the new A24 thriller that's definitely getting a lot of buzz. I'm hearing the words hereditary and it follows thrown around. Uh, I don't know what to expect. I haven't seen it yet. And we'll also have a review of The Haunted Mansion, Disney's uh, second attempt at bringing that amusement park ride to life in a film. So and that will wrap up tonight's episode of HMP. Uh everyone please go check out our website. It's at horrormoviepodcast.net. You can find all of the previous episodes up there including everything that was done when Jay and Wolfman and Dave and Joel We're on the show, Uh, all of that stuff is out there. We have a Facebook group, Horror Movie Podcast. Go check it out, come join us. We are trying to cultivate the community over there. We have lots of interactive opportunities, including uh, your input on future episodes, input on things like the at your mercy next episode and frankenstein episode we're going to do an at your mercy segment uh each of us picks a film and talks about it we put a poll up there uh, a post up there to get titles and recommendations you can find us on twitter and that's going to wrap up tonight's episode so thank you if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes of hmp please go over to apple podcasts and leave us a review five star reviews help us just spread the word. On the show, and this, uh, as always, this is Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.